Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, September the 11th. Wow. 9-11. Yeah. 843-661-0937. Our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Do you remember where you were when the day? Um, we'll get into that. Evan Brown will join us at about 9.05, and we'll commemorate and um, and reminisce on that unbelievably dramatic and ever-changing day uh, in American history. I've got this theory that my generation, and I'm talking about growing up as a young person, I'm thinking about the 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 life-changing moments we had. Now, now, maybe they were there. I just was not as aware because we didn't have Twitter and Facebook and 24-7 media. I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of major events that uh, because I was, you know, c- kind of off doing my non-political thing, uh, you know, tank of gas, girl. Anyway, um, <laughs> not paying much attention to the political scene. I mean, I'm sure there were things that, happened i mean obviously i remember the totality of the cold war i mean i don't remember a certain moment that i felt we were closer to you know military engagement or not but um when when you think about the let's talk about the 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 kid born in the 90s because you and i were reminiscing about you know jimmy buffett and robbie robertson and glenn fry and i mean if you were born in the late 60s or excuse me if you were born in the 60s kind of raised in the 70s and 80s um, you lived through a pretty peaceful period of time. I yeah. mean, I understand the Reagan revolution, the cold war and, you know, uh, the, 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 the nuclear race that kind of concluded with Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall. But if you were born in the nineties, once again, I said, I don't know I've said it a hundred times over these airwaves. I remember as a small kid watching the nightly news with my father, because he watched the news. I mean, Dad would get home from work, watch the news, and it was Vietnam, 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 Vietnam. And there was no way you could convince me I was not going to die in that jungle. I mean, that's just where American kids went to die. And I was no different than any other American kid. Eventually, you know, I would get old enough, and that's where I would meet uh, my demise. I didn't understand political wars. I didn't understand intervention. I, I had no interest, or excuse me, I had no, absolute no interest, excuse me, no understanding of that. But um, but the majority of my life was maybe maybe uninformed would be a better way to say it. Maybe I just didn't know there were all <laughs> blissfully these, unaware. Yeah, but they, hey, what is it? Um, ignorance is there's beauty in ignorance, mm-hmm. and um, being ignorant of the world around me, maybe there was beauty in that. But then you think about uh, my oldest son was born in ninety, so he has seen um nine eleven as an eleven year old because we we're talking about it with him yesterday. Um, he said the teachers turned the television on. And once the second plane hit, they turned the television away from the kids, you know, as if to protect them oh. from, I mean, I would imagine every kid, every, every teacher did it differently. There is no um, code of conduct. Uh, when someone flies planes into buildings and you view it in real time. Um, but you think about if you're born in 1990, you witnessed that in 2001, you witnessed a financial meltdown that I still think was a depression in 2008, um, and then the pandemic, you know, in 2020. So in your young life, in your developing years, you've seen three pretty traumatic events happen in America. Um, none good. I mean, there's nothing good about 9-11. I mean, it changed the world forever. There's nothing good about 2008. Um, it changed the financial world. I don't know about forever, but it has for, I'll tell you this, as someone who was, 
uh, heavily invested in business. I mean, I don't know that I got scarred up or skinned up as much as a lot of people who were directly in real estate, but, um, but I mean, it changed the way I look at the world. Let me ask you this, Rev, mm-hmm. um, from your perspective, and I want to get Josh's here in a second. So from your perspective, 9-11, uh, 2008, and the pandemic, what upset your world? Oh. I mean, it, w- w- 9-11 was the bigger moment. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely. no doubt about it. But I'll tell you, of the three, 9-11 affected my world the least. Okay, I've got to take my shoes off to get on a plane. I mean, in all honesty, that's all that happened to me personally. I mean, obviously, the world changed. The country changed. The mindset of the nation changed. But the the financial disaster of 2008 had much more impact on my life personally than 9-11. Uh, the pandemic had much more impact on my life personally uh, than 9-11. But, but I guess collectively, the American experience and, and the fact that we had, you know, terrorists attack our nation within its border, I mean, that, that was, I mean, that, that obviously that's more profound than a financial meltdown. Mm-hmm. It's more profound than a pandemic, but it didn't affect me anywhere near as much. I mean, if you said Ken's life affected by one, uh, 9-11, two, COVID, three, the financial meltdown of 2008, 9-11's a distant third. I mean, a very distant third. The, the only thing that has changed about my life, um, I mean, obviously I understand the, the geopolitical world a little better. I mean, I think I have a better understanding. I think we were, I think my generation was forced to shift gears from, you know, the cold war to this radical Islamic terrorism. There you go. I mean, that, that may be the biggest difference. You, you, you and I, not Josh, but you and I would have been so kind of, um, I ingrained upon us, you know, nine, excuse me, um, the cold war. Sure. And, um, and once Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall came out of Reagan's mouth, you know, we were prideful Americans. And then we, you know, okay, we won. There's not going to be another giant to fight. Surely that's the end of that, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're the preeminent superpower on the planet. We don't have to care about anything else for a long time. And then, you know, 9-11 and all of a sudden we, I, I don't know, my, my, my heart, eyes, and soul were awakened to there are people out there who despise our way of life who despise our very existence, who would do whatever it took. I mean, imagine, and I've always said this, I mean, I'm not some military expert by any stretch of the imagination, but if I were, how do you go about defeating someone who can convince, I mean, their their ideology is rooted in something or other that convinces them to learn to fly a plane into the side of a building. I mean, they didn't learn to fly and land a plane, right? I mean, they, they were not, remember the flight instructors? He said they were very disinterested in learning how to land a plane. I remember. Yeah. I mean, they, they were very curious in how to fly a plane. Take off landing, not not interested at all. Well, I mean, to me, takeoffs and landings pretty critical to the flying experience. And um, now that's after the fact. That's some of the uh, the postmortem that was done. But, I mean, how do you address an enemy that will convince or is motivated by something, uh, in this case, Allah, and is, you know, fanatical Islam, that will convince them that there's glory. There's, there's, um, there's, you know, heaven awaits and virgins and eternity and all these other sorts of things. If you'll only get in this plane that's full of, um, jet fuel and fly into the side of these buildings with these innocent people on board. I mean, how do you, that, that, that's who can get there? You know what I mean? Who, who can, I mean, how do you rationalize that? I mean, it, it's completely and totally irrational. So, so to address it in a rational 
mainstream kind of fashion. I, I just don't know uh, how you do it. So, so uh, the point I'm trying to make is of the three events, one is more important. I mean, I think 9-11 is the world-changing event of my of my life. I mean, I, you know, I'm trying to think of things that have changed. Up. I mean, obviously, you know, withdrawing in Vietnam, um, winning Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, winning uh, the Cold War. I'm thinking about, you know, a few others. But but 9-11 fundamentally changed our lives forever. I mean, it, it, we live in a different world today because of what happened uh, in 9-11. Um, what, $6 trillion worth of military spending in that part of the world, securing peace and prosperity for, anyway, uh, you know, that's a debate for another day. I did see where uh, Crystal, Bill Crystal, uh, was talking about, you know, took exception with some of Trump's policies kind of heading into uh, toward 9-11, making the world less secure. I mean, that's kind of the interventionist mindset. You know, anything that is not promoting or supporting of the military-industrial complex is making the world a more dangerous place. Um, you made it a pretty dangerous place there, my friend. I mean, he had a big hand in weapons of mass destruction. You know, we're sure they've got it. Um, I'm sure he was one of these scholars that leaned on Colin Powell, you know, to give the speech. And remember the, the story we know now is Powell didn't really want to give the speech because he wasn't sure the intelligence was accurate, but they pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. And the world kind of concluded, you know, here would be the interesting question to that. And I'm going to get to the interesting question that we, we, we always defer to what well, all the major national security agencies agree that he had weapons of mass destruction. I mean, did they, is that true or was that cooked too? You know, with that book cooked as well. I mean, mm -hmm. I think Saddam had weapons. Yeah, didn't he use them on his own Used citizens? them on the Kurds. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think at some point in time, um, he and uh, Syria probably, you know, made some deal and they, you know, shoveled them across the uh, across the border into Assad, into Syria. I don't know that. I mean, I'm not one of these think tankers and I'm certainly not a military industrial complex expert, but, but I do know that 9-11 led, led to a 20, what, 22-year war? 21-year um, involvement in a part of the world that is probably less secure today than it was. And we spent several trillion dollars in the name of security. And I, I do believe that that led to a lot of the animus or a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the questioning that a lot of Americans have toward foreign policy. And the, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying Trump is the president. I mean, Trump got a lot of... Um, a lot of attention when he, you know, I mean, he began by, I think, defending the war in Iraq to begin with. And then he eventually said, it's crazy what we're doing here. Why are we staying here? Why are we? I mean, I think most Americans, and I've read polling, most Americans believe going to Afghanistan and basically seeking revenge, you know, for those that were responsible for, for the events of 9-11. And we believe that Afghanistan was a training ground, a safe haven, um, allowed a lot of things to happen that led to the events of nine of nine 11. And, but, but once we decided to, to go to Iraq, that was uh, just a bad day in, in American history, Josh, you're much younger than Rev and I. So what is your my I mean, what is your take on those three moments in American history? And they were world history, but I mean, we're, we're, we're citizens of America. So we would have an American take on it, but, but nine 11 today, 22 years ago, um, I guess, let's say, I mean, to me, it's November 2007. I mean, that, that's when you start sawing some of the um, 
some of the some of the real problems in the financial markets, and you start solving the markets while you know swing down nine hundred points one day, up five hundred the next, down a thousand one day, up four hundred and fifty the next. Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and some of these others are no longer with us. But I mean, and, and then you go to the pandemic. What what, what is what is a young person's kind of a um, cliff note take on those three episodes in American history? Um, it's a little tough because. I was three years old when uh, 9-11 happened, so I wasn't even in kindergarten yet. So I don't remember it at all because my parents, you know, I'm sure they they did not let me in the room to see what was going on. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea. You know, I I don't even remember being locked in my room or anything. It was such a non-thing to me. You're a little, 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 little kid. Yes. very. Yeah, three years old. So... But uh, the 2008 thing, I, I remember, you know, my dad, he would always take us to school on his way to work. So I remember all of a sudden having to get up a lot earlier and seeing cars piled out into the highway waiting to get to a gas pump, you know. So in terms of what I think has been the most impactful, it's certainly a mashup between 9-11 and the COVID pandemic. It's tough to say because, you know, it's like I would say if you – analyze the events in of themselves it, like what's more impactful planes hitting a building or a virus i would say the virus but you know it's only been three years since that happened it's hard to know what the long-term effects have been or will be you know obviously with 9-11 being 22 years ago again i wasn't really alive beforehand i don't know how how different things have been so I think but I think there's been a much more observable observable effect on our freedom. What do you think the biggest difference, Rev, from nine eleven? I mean, what were we able to do prior to nine eleven that, that has been inhibited today? Well, I it, it changed your psyche, I think is the biggest thing, because before nine eleven you didn't conceive of such a thing, really. Not in America, that we were vulnerable to attack. Um obviously we talk about airplane travel and security being handled differently since then, having to take off your, your shoes and your belt or whatever, going through security. But yeah, I think it's, it's the psyche that you were, that you were vulnerable to that sort of attack before then, even being born in 1967 and growing up through the cold war of the eighties, other than the, the drills in school, when you put the book over your head or got under the desk or whatever to practice your, uh, your nuclear attack drills. Um, it's it, to, to me, it's the psyche as far as the comparison you know, the story's still being written on the pandemic. I mean, we know how much money went into world economies in order to do what they were doing to, I guess, control the financial effects. Uh, we know that, you know, a lot of people died. Um, but how long are we going to feel the effects, the inflation, and, and that money? And what is that long-term going to do to our economy? Don't know yet. So you didn't mention 2008. No, and it was impactful. There's, there's no doubt about it. That's interesting to me that 2008 had more impact on me personally. Yeah, and 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 professionally. But here, here's the way I look at that, and, and I agree. And I, it was profound. And I mean, I, I know some, you know, was involved in some business and stuff that that was affected by that. No doubt about it. But people didn't die. That's true. That's true. I didn't think of that. You're right. That tells you where my priorities are. <laughs> Keeping people alive by keeping money in the bank. Right. Well, let's keep money in the <laughs> but it is interesting. Now, I mean, in, in all honesty, I think I think 2008 was the precursor to what government was willing to do 
in the event of an emergency. The break glass in case of emergency. Too big to fail. Yeah. I mean, and, and next thing you know, we got a, um, you know, a bailout of GM and we got a bailout of this and a bailout of that and a government arranged, you know, refinancing of the economy, TARP. And, um, you know, and, you know, I think Hank Paulson calls Jamie Dimon and says, hey, we need you to buy Lehman Brothers. You know what I mean? So, some of that. It, it really, and it was not liberal Democrats doing this. I mean, it was by and large moderate to conservative business-minded Republicans who were intervening in the affairs of an economy in the name of, you know, the federal government. Maybe that's why I find it so interesting. Now, now, and, and I'll accept this. My world was a little bit different. I was heavily exposed, uh, you know, not in a way that some of my friends and associates, and you would, I know some of the, uh, I mean, there, there's some common people we know out there um, that, you know, lost everything. I mean, really and truly, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they were on fairly sound footing and, and fairly solid ground and they lost everything, um, you know, and, and you could say, well, I mean, it was some of their fault. And so, yeah, of course it was. It always is. I mean, it's never all this or all that. It's always a multitude and combination of things. But, uh, but that's an interesting point. Um, now, you could say nobody died no way, but I'm sure some people who lost their livelihoods decided to take matters into their yeah. own hands. Oh, yeah, of course. But it was not. I mean, it was not innocent people in an airplane, nor people trying to stay safe from a, a virus. And I think Josh made an interesting point that you can't see. I mean, you can visualize that there's a there's a quantifiable reaction to have when you watch, you know, a plane fly into a building, and you know there are innocent people on that plane. Could have been you. Could have been me. Could have been anybody. Uh, I've always felt the story of 9/11 is what is it 6:25 on a Monday morning. I think 9/11 was on a Tuesday. But that Tuesday morning, Josh, Dave, and Ken got up like they always do. And they did what they always do. They gathered themselves. They kind of made plans for the day. Some went to work. Some went to the gym. Some carried their kids to to daycare, just like they always do. And they didn't come home. And that's always been the profoundness of that moment, people living their lives as they always do. Hey, you want to meet at such and such tonight? Yeah, I'll get off at 530. What time to get off? Six. I'll wait on you. Hey, can you pick up such and such from, you know, band practice? I'll make sure to get there by 430. Uh, I mean, you'd never imagine in a million years that your day is going to turn out like it did. And it changed the world to Rev's points, you know, forever. And when you see the optic of kind of the center of finance with, the I don't know, the most financially powerful country the world has ever known, and those two buildings fall to the ground. I mean, I still make the argument that Saddam Hussein, I mean, excuse me, uh, Osama bin Laden won. I mean, I still make that argument. I know he's dead. His ashes were, you know, uh, thrown in the ocean, but I still make the argument. I mean, the, the, the word terror is to breed, or the word terrorism is to breed terror, and, and look at what all we've changed and how we live our lives, conduct ourselves in a free society. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few. 843-661-0937. I intended to touch on college football early Monday morning. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that before the um before the day ends, I'm sure. Uh, somebody on the phone? Yep. Let's go there. Breeze, good morning. Hey, guys, what's going on? I, uh, you know, when that stuff happened, I remember, and I believed, in good, I, I believed our government was good. I, uh, I believed that uh, we needed to go to war in Afghanistan. I believed we needed to go to war in Iraq because Saddam Hussein was a bad guy and he was violating the no-fly zones 
I believe that there was nothing uh, curious about the world trade out centers going down. I thought there was nothing curious about a building beside it going down. You know, those people ran into that building, those planes hit. Those firemen weren't saying, hey, let's go in there. We probably got five minutes before the buildings fall down on us. And they were, you know, nobody told them, nobody said, hey, those planes will cause those buildings to go down. You'd be lucky if you got 15 or 20 minutes. Nobody told them that. So a lot of people said so they came up with these reasons why they fell. I don't know the answers. I have some buddies of mine that have their, their theories, you know. But anyway, and I believed in the Patriot Act. I believed in all of that stuff. But, but now I look back at what really was going on. I, I mean, who really benefited from 9-11? When I say our enemies, yeah, the uh, Islamic terrorists are our enemies. But who really benefited from 9-11? Who actually may have been actually secretly happy that 9-11 happened? Look at what rights we've lost. The Patriot Act, I never thought they would use it against us. They called it Patriot. So if you weren't a Patriot, you didn't support it. Patriots supported the Patriot Act. Bull crap. Then you look at the dang old, there's questions about what's going on, went on that day. And we haven't gotten answers to that. But look who got rich since then. He said it, trillions and trillions of dollars spent. And who has gotten more power? Well, the government. Who told us after 9-11, hey, man, you may have to give up some rights and some freedoms in the name of safety. Well, then it comes along COVID, right? And then you got then you got the financial meltdown, which was self-inflicted by the government. I tell you, I have changed my view 100% since 9-11 of the government, the CIA, the FBI, Republicans, Democrats, Every one of them. Y'all know how I feel. But when I think about 9-11, I think more about the bad people that run governments than I do about the Islamic terrorists. The Islamic terrorists would never be able to destroy America. The people that are that running our government and these huge corporations that are global and the people that are running the government worldwide, they're the ones that are the most destructive force on earth. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. That's an interesting analogy. So, so, so I'm using myself as an example here because I said earlier that 2008 had more impact or effect on me than 2001. In 2001, I was not even a registered voter. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking through this, and I'm like Breeze. I would have probably. I mean, I don't remember the moment in time that I said, "Wow." But, but I, you know, I leaned Republican despite not being a voter. I mean, I, I was a pro-business guy. I mean, I was raised by a self-made businessman. That was standard reason, right? But I mean, there was not a lot of progressivism in my home, if you know what I mean. My dad was trying to start a business, and, I mean, he liked deregulation, and he liked low taxes, and he liked, you know, paving highways and, and keeping the economy headed in a positive direction. We didn't talk about those things, um, but he lived it. I mean, it, it was obvious to me where he stood. So, so in 01, I believed that George Bush was trying to do the right thing by the Patriot Act and going to find the bad guys. I mean, that would have been natural, though. I mean, mm-hmm. why well, would I, I believe anything different? I mean, I had no reason to believe anything different. I just told you my suspicion of Vietnam was as a kid, right? I mean, I didn't understand geopolitics. I had no idea about JFK and LBJ and Nixon and all these, you know, who's going to do what? Who get our boys home from Vietnam? And, you know, should they have been there or not? Is it a political war or not? Have they been misled or not? I had no idea. 
could have cared less about that. All I knew is I wasn't there, and I didn't know anybody. You know, I had a friend, a cousin, a first cousin that uh, that went and came back and came back okay. Um, and I, I remember the family talking about, you know, Billy went, Billy came back. We're just glad Billy went and Billy came back because a lot of those kids didn't come back. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm, I'm 10. I'm, I'm 11. You know, whatever. Um, but then 9-11 happens, and I'm not even a registered voter. I'm trying to learn a family business. Um, and George Bush says we got to do this. George Bush is, a, a, you know, a, a Jesus-loving Republican. There's no way I can't believe what George Bush tells me, right? Cheney, Rumsfeld, who are they? I mean, I don't know Cheney and Rumsfeld. Never heard of those guys. But George W. Bush said in a debate stage or on a debate stage that the one person who has affected his life more than anybody is Jesus Christ, right? I mean, that was one of the answers. And the night he addressed the nation, he read the 23rd Psalm. I mean, think of that, guys. George Bush on a debate stage as a conservative Republican says that Jesus is the person that has shaped his worldview more than anybody. He's the redeeming force in his life. Um, and then George Bush addresses the nation, maybe that night or the night after, and reads the 23rd Psalm. No, that would have been the debates during the campaign. You know, he's trying to get elected, and he does. And um, and I remember a lot of people thought it odd, but but a lot of, you know, what I'd call the um, the God-fearing Republican base said, it's, you know, that's honorable. That's, you know, we, we love George W. Bush that he would publicly profess his faith um, to Jesus Christ. So he's got a lot of points with me. I'm a non-voting business guy, you know, trying to learn a business under his father's wing or tutelage. And along comes a guy from Texas wearing cowboy boots, driving a Ford truck, says Jesus is important, and he's reading the 23rd Psalm. That cat's not going to lie to me. But that cat's not going to send us over somewhere we shouldn't be. And this Patriot Act, I remember this curly-haired senator, junior senator from Kentucky saying, they'll be reading your damn emails. I mean, they'll be plundering through every aspect of your life. You watch. You wait. I'm like, who oh, is that crazy a conspiracy nut? theorist. Yeah, who is that crazy, curly-haired um, senator from Kentucky? Get him out of the way. That guy said he loved Jesus. And he read the 23rd Psalm. He's going to do the right thing, guys. That guy's not going to do the wrong thing. And the next thing you know, we're knee-deep in it. We're trillions of dollars spent. And we don't really know what we're there for. And a lot of young men and women are coming home limping and, you know, um, in, in, in various stages of, of, um, of injury. Uh, some didn't come home. And, may, may, I mean, you know, I'm thinking about it. it now, in 08, go back. I mean, my impact or my impression of 08, I'm already in the middle of it. I get elected to county council in 2004. I mean, I'm running for re-election in 2008. So I'm in politics. I understand the, the convergence of business and politics. I mean, I had to kind of take a crash course, and I'm Johnny come lately, and I'm drinking from a fire hose. But when 08 comes along, I understood the Treasury. I understood the Fed a little bit. I understood the presidency and Congress and what it was required to do or not required to do. So, so maybe that's why I have such a different interpretation of what happened in 9-11 and then what happened in 2008. But I think Breeze is onto something here. That's when a lot of people who by nature would trust government began wondering, kind of scratching their head. Uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> so something doesn't, you know, maybe that crazy senator from Kentucky with the curly hair wasn't as crazy as we thought he was back in the day. Uh, let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. Hey, uh, I think I got a little bit different take. I was actually in uh, living in New York when uh, 
they uh they were building the towers and uh that and I was a, of course a southerner, but I, those Yankees were so proud of those uh, towers going up, and I went down there to the construction site and uh, uh, several uh, several times, a number of times, and uh, just watch them building for a little bit, and uh, they were saying, "Oh man, these are wonderful," and uh, they built those towers and the rest of the complex, and and uh, the. The New Yorkers were just extremely proud, and it was an awesome thing to see those towers uh, from across the river there, uh, over in uh, in Brooklyn. And uh, but uh, the uh, but th- this thing, and, but I knew the government was lying to me because in in the same period of time, I also lived in Texas for a good while. And uh, and when I was there, I, I was down there at Daly Plaza, and I walked down there, and uh, it, uh, they charged fifty cents to go in and look at the sniper's nest, where uh, supposedly Oswald was. Well, I went down there, and uh, went up there, and uh, to and uh, I paid fifty cents. But there was nobody up there when I got up there, so I just walked under the ribbon and looked under the looked at the actual, where the sniper's nest was supposed to be, and they uh, look, looked out the window and everything. And immediately, it dawned on me that Oswald did not shoot the president from this window because the shot was not there. While he was going away, going toward the underpass, the shot was when he turned on the Daily Plaza. I mean, anybody that's ever fired a firearm knew that. And then all of a sudden, it just tumbled to me and said, he trained three years as a Marine. Why in the world would he use a Carcano? He'd use M1 Garand. And that, and uh, I, it, it was just... Uh, I, I realized that uh, what they'd been saying all these years was just a lie. And uh, the same thing about the Patriot Day, I knew it was a lie, but you couldn't stop it because it was just happening. It was like the weather. It was like a hurricane coming on shore. Oh, we got to have this Patriot Act. And I said, that's not going to do any good. Well, <laughs> they uh, it did some bad, I'll tell you that right now. And we and uh, people still believe these lines. Like yeah, Williams and Jeff, they could, they'd vote Democrat no matter what. And uh, I remember uh, we uh, we thought uh, Kennedy was a good guy, and I I think in some ways he was. And I believe that the government had him killed. Thank I, you, I really- thank you, Michael. I mean, you, I, I know people, and I've seen polling that now says. I mean, there was a certain percentage of Americans that believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. It's a much smaller percentage um, today than it was. And I think government's adding to its, you know, whether it tells you the truth or not. Now, you know, I've never war- read the Warren Commission. I-, I know they kept a lot of that under wraps and, you know, what what's true, what's not true. Um, the more the more you think about it, and, and really and truly, I mean, I think, Mike, this does kind of tie in the suspicion we have of government. But think about every time government does something like this. What what do they do? They cast fear. They figure out a way to make Josh, Dave, and Ken afraid, right? I mean, I'm afraid of the next fanatical Islamic terrorist attack, right? I mean, it could be in the heartland. could be in the deep south. 
could be in a remote place like Florence or Sumter or Orangeburg. I mean, and, and we're, we're so controllable whether we like it or not. And once fear becomes a, a part of the equation, we get irrational. I mean, we do, all of us get irrational. 2008. I mean, there's no way I believe the government should do what it did. But what, what do they tell us? I mean, do you want the entire economy to melt down? You want that paycheck you get every other week to not be able to clear the bank? I mean, that's where we're headed. And COVID, I mean, what was it? You want everybody over the age of 60 to die of COVID? I mean, the government instills a high degree of fear, and we become unbelievably irrational. You know, I didn't, I was born in December of 63. Kennedy gets killed in November of 63. So obviously, uh, Josh, I wasn't even three. You know, I was (laughs) waiting to be born, as they say. But, um, I mean, I got to believe that the American people really want to know who did this, right? I mean, they really want to know who did this. And then you get one guy and you say, we got it solved. Don't worry about it. Nothing to see here. He was a sharpshooter. He was a former veteran, you know, and he shot JFK how many times? Or he shot how many times and, you know, blew it. Anyway, um, the government has not done much to help itself in the field of trustworthiness or not, right? I mean, if you took a poll of Americans today, uh, do you trust the government more today than you did 20 years ago? They'd say no. 30 years ago, they'd probably say um, no. And and when did that begin? I mean, Thigpen believes it was Vietnam. But, I mean, it might have been the JFK story. But, but, but I mean, 80% of Americans believe that Harvey Oswald acted alone in 1975, 76, 77. Somewhere in the 80s, they become a little more skeptical. And it would be interesting, um, Google that, Rev. What percentage mm-hmm. of Americans believe that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone? And I'll bet it's half what it was, you know, the several years following the tragic assassination of John F. Kennedy. Take a break. Back in a few moments. It takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Well, we started this morning talking about 9-11 turned into conspiracy theory talk. <laughs> Going way, way you don't back. Have to twist our arm to lead us down that road. But, but I thought you'd you'd be starting the show talking about football. I mean, this is you know this was week what two home openers for both Clemson and y- South Carolina yep. wins uh, yep. W's for Clemson and South Carolina against FCS FCS schools. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, take Clemson the W. Take and the W. Southern South Carolina and Furman. Um, but I, I was waiting to hear your. You know, I watched. I different- couldn't say anything about the game. I didn't see a play of it. I didn't see a. Sing- I don't That's get SEC plus. I mean, I'm not going through buying this app to qualify for that app. And, you know, and then you've got to pitch quarters to get this app. And, you know, if you um, now, first I'm if surprised. You took a shower Wednesday before five, you're <laughs> eligible for this app. And I'm just not going to do it. I mean, you know, um, I first, tried first, to listen on the radio, but I couldn't. And and I'm not fooling around with apps and whatnot. So I just watched Texas, Alabama. Uh, and, you know, I had friends obviously updating me on what's happening uh, with the Gamecock game. They struggled to begin with. Clemson struggled to begin with. With Charleston Southern, um, I can't believe you missed the home opener. You didn't go. I didn't go, um, hmm. and I don't have much regret. I'm sorry, really? I just don't have much uh, regret. I went, and it was great. It well, was I mean, fun. Yeah, good for you. You know, I, I, once again, you're an enthusiastic fan. I've been going for 51 years, and I'm just not quite as excited <laughs> on some of those Saturdays as I was. I mean, obviously, I'd have watched the game if I didn't have to climb through nine hoops and you know subscribe to eleven um, eleven amps, but. Um, I, mean, I, I just think we get too excited about, you know, did you see this? Did you see that? Yeah, but you're playing Charleston Southern and and Furman. 
Uh, well, it's still a big, yeah, it's a big play against inferior talent. I just, I've never gotten, um, well, you'll find out a lot this weekend. Uh, not with Clemson. I think they're playing Florida Atlantic. South Carolina's going to Georgia. Um, and they're playing the best college football program in America, period. I mean, Georgia is right now the best college football program in America, maybe by a pretty good margin. But they may be clearly better than anybody else. Um, I, my takeaway from what I've read and what I've heard from people that know what they're talking about is Beamer has a kind of a choice to make. It seems that some of the younger players are better than some of the veterans. And coaches find comfort in experienced players. They always have. And, I mean, he's going to make a decision. Uh, it, to me, it comes down to Mississippi State. I mean, you, you've had one toss-up game. That's North Carolina. You lost it. You can't lose two toss-up games in a row. Mississippi State would be the next toss-up game. With all due respect, a 28-point line is not a toss-up game. I mean, Georgia is clearly better than South Carolina. And if they don't wet the bed, they'll win that game. The Gamecocks have to come back home and figure out a way to win another toss-up game against Mississippi State, and they can kind of, you know, get the ship back heading in a in a positive direction. Um, I watched a good bit of Clemson. Um, they're just not as good as they were. I mean, they're, they're, I'm sorry. I mean, and I'm not being a Gamecock homer here. It's hard to argue they are. Um, Clemson had. I told Rev during the break. You want me to give you one of the craziest statistics in the history of football. I mean, when you really think about it, the Green Bay Packers played a game yesterday without Brett Favre or Aaron Rodgers as their starting quarterback. Now, I mean, there have been injuries, but not many. But, I mean, they they knew that Rodgers nor Favre were available for the first time since 1992. Let me say that again. <laughs> That's crazy. The Packers have played 31 football seasons with a first ballot Hall of Famer as their quarterback. Let me say that again. The Packers have played 31 NFL football seasons with a first ballot Hall of Famer as their starting quarterback. Clemson kind of had that. I mean, they had two of the generational talents that have ever played college football in the state of South Carolina. The most important position on the field is quarterback, period. I mean, it's clearly the most important position on the field. They had generational talent. And they don't now. <laughs> I mean, they've got a, a kid that I think has some upside, but he's not Deshaun Watson or Trevor Lawrence by any stretch of the imagination. Told my son yesterday, we're talking about Clowney and Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun. I said, yeah, Clowney was a generational talent, but he played defensive end. I mean, there's a way to negate that. There's, there's a way to just, hey, we're not fooling with him. We'll double team him. We'll run away from him. I mean, he wasn't without question. As a college football player, Clowney was dominant. But he didn't touch the football every play. So Clemson had um, a run, not like the Packers because it's not pro football, but they had a similar kind of a, a similar reality that they had a generational first ballot, you know, college football Hall of Famer on the most important position or at the most important position while they had a lot of complimentary players. And they don't have that today. Um, what is Clemson's record going to end up being? I don't know. don't have any idea. Um they're going to have their hands full with Florida State. They'll probably have their hands full with um, North Carolina. Uh, I'm thinking of another. There's another team or two that they'll have a, a closely. They're just not clearly better than everybody. I don't think Clemson's going five and seven. I don't think they're going seven and five. But, they, you know, Florida State's got as good of players as Clemson now. North Carolina may have close to as good of players as, as they do now. They, they've always, 
I don't know, for some reason had trouble at Syracuse. But, but you know, you got Watson and Lawrence to bail you out, and they always did because they were that good. That's how you win national championships. You have, you know, elite players at important positions, and Clemson still has elite players at some positions. They just don't have an elite quarterback. And he may develop into one. I mean, he may absolutely develop into one. But, but you know, to me, Clemson's easy to figure out. Dabo doesn't like the portal, doesn't like NIL. He's had a lot of success. It's hard to be his focus forever. Um, we saw that with Nick Saban, right? I mean, Texas pretty much took it to Alabama in, uh, in Tuscaloosa. First time you've seen that in a long, long time. So college football's in flux. I mean, there's a lot of change happening. These guys that have done it their way, culture, tradition. Let me ask you a question, Rev. If you're the parent of a five-star kid, and Dabo and Saban are sitting on each side of the table, and, and Saban's telling the culture and tradition of Alabama. Dabo's telling the culture and tradition of Clemson. But the guy the other end, the Florida State coach, says, hey, I, I don't have the culture and tradition they have in recent time, but I got a big bank account. <laughs> I got a big bucket of money over here called NIL. Texas A&M, same thing. Um, I mean, that's a story that is hard for me to understand is Texas A&M. I mean, it really, right. it's hard for me to fathom how they've squandered all that opportunity they've had. I mean, they funded NIL in a way that nobody ever has. They basically bought the best recruiting class college football has ever seen. And they're not winning. I mean, they're struggling. And it might be Jimbo Fisher's fault. It might be a locker room issue. I don't know, but I watched A&M play against Miami. And, and let's say this, as an SEC homer, you, you got your issues. I mean, you know, eat some humble pie. It may just mean more, but you're not better right now. I mean, the ACC has stepped up, and they've taken the SEC to the woodshed in some of these big games. I told a buddy of mine Saturday morning, I said, this A&M-Miami game's a big deal. What do you mean? Similar talent? I mean, Wake should beat Vanderbilt, right? I mean, they just got better players. Wake's a better football program than Vanderbilt. Um, but you had LSU-Florida State. Florida State won that game fairly convincingly. And, and I told a buddy of mine, I said, hey, that's kind of a, it's hard to argue. Well, that's the good teams in the ACC playing the bad teams in the SEC. No, Florida State, LSU, we're good on good, right? I mean, LSU's a good SEC team. Florida State, a good ACC team. Who came out on top? The good ACC team. And it wasn't real close. So you get to Miami and Texas A&M, and I looked at it kind of similar. They aren't as good as LSU and Florida State, but they're similar. And Miami whooped up on them. I mean, just kind of handled them pretty easily in the in the second half. And I just, you know, that, that tells me a lot about some of the teams in the ACC. I think Clemson's got to go to Miami, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, that, that's another challenge for the Tigers. But but the wheels aren't coming off at Clemson. I don't buy that. Is it a, is it a program in decline? Probably. But how do you not decline when you had, as the Packers will find, <laughs> when you had 31 years of first ballot Hall of Fame quarterback play? The Tigers had, you know, what, six years, five or six years of phenomenal quarterback play. And they just don't have that now. And you're going to you're going to struggle a bit. And you're going to play teams that find it easier to prepare for without Deshaun Watson and, uh, and Trevor Lawrence. Now, the Gamecocks, and I know there was a big uh, – I looked on Facebook after Lenore Sellers, you know, made his debut because we're from Florence saying he's a South Florence oh, yeah. product. And um, – I mean, there's a lot to like about that kid, mm -hmm. but but I'd, I'd kind of pump the brakes a little bit. Uh, it was Furman, with all due respect to Furman, um, unbelievably academically credentialed and expensive. 
Um, I think Furman and Walford may be the two most expensive schools in the in the state. But, you know, sellers, I mean, I've heard people who are close to the program tell me they believe he's got as good a skill set as anybody who's ever played quarterback at South Carolina. And these are wow. old hands. And these aren't these aren't sunshine pumpers. I mean, these aren't guys that say that about every player that comes down the pike. They like his size. They like his skill set. They like his demeanor, his attitude. Um, you know, we'll find out. I, I, I said it. I'll say it again. To me, the Gamecock season comes down to Mississippi State. You can't lose two toss-up games this early in the season. You can split and be okay. And there's no shame in losing to North Carolina. There's nothing big to brag about handling, you know, Charleston Southern or Furman. Um, I think Clemson's test comes up in two weeks when they host Florida State. South Carolina's comes up in two weeks when they host Mississippi State. Those will be interesting games as far as I'm concerned. You skipped you skip Georgia. Well, let me just go to Athens and let it rip. You know what I mean? Just go to Athens and let it rip. I mean, just, you know, uh, you're a 28-point underdog. There's a reason you're a 28-point underdog. Just go to Athens. Um, I mean, I'm not saying mail it in by any stretch of the imagination. Take the points? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, let's see how some of these injuries uh, work themselves out. But anyway, um, to me, the, the game was Texas-Alabama. I mean, that, that was a – college football is better when Texas is good. It just is. I mean, Texas is an historic, legendary program. They've had their issues trying to find their way. Um, I'm excited as an SEC guy to have Oklahoma and Texas in the SEC beginning next year. I think the Gamecocks travel to Norman to play um, against Oklahoma. Just two of the two of the programs I grew up, you know, um, kind of respecting and admiring from afar. And now they'll be in the same league, and you'll play those two teams on a rotating basis. But you better up your game if you're going to beat them. That's uh. That's all I can say. Uh, college football is in a state of transition. And where it goes from here, I don't know. If I were, if, the one thing college football needs desperately, and Mac Brown lambasted the NCAA. I mean, Mac Brown is not a bomb thrower. He's not a guy who needles like Steve Spurrier or Saban says some of these things at times. Um, Mac Brown has always been above the fray. And Mac Brown said, and I quote, the NCAA cares nothing about these kids. The NCAA cares nothing about, about these kids. College football needs a commissioner. I mean, it needs some central authority not named the NCAA that makes rules of the best interest of the game and the kids who play the game. And right now, the NCAA is a bureaucratic bully. I mean, they, they always have been, uh, and they've lost some control because of this NIL lawsuit with Ed O'Bannon and they, they don't know what to do. I mean, they, you know, they, they've had all the power. They've had all the, the money, all the influence, all the control, and now they don't. And I think at times they lash out at some of these, at some of these programs needlessly. And I think you know, the kid at North Carolina should be allowed to play. If it's about the student athlete, we know it's not because there's not a student athlete out there much anymore. They're semi-pro football players. But, um, but Mac Brown is a guy that – when Mac Brown says things like that, if Spurrier said it, you'd say, well, that's Steve. I mean, it's, you know how he is. Or of Saban. That's just, you know, how those guys are. Mac Brown's not one of those guys. And for him to be as aggressive as he was and prescind, I mean, that, that tells me a lot about the state of the game and how some of the insiders, the people who have participated in the sport at that level, have a kind of a queasy feeling about it and where it's headed and where it is. I just think college football needs to find its North star and, and figure out what it needs to be. We're watching Auburn play California. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so that's the team that'll be the ACC next year. The team on the Pacific coast 
will be in the Atlantic Coast Conference. Help me understand. Okay. Anyway, it is it is what it is, and they're scrambling. I mean, the, the entire sport is scrambling. And um, and I just think if they were to point or hire a, a kind of a, a, a football CEO, you know, a um a, a commissioner that kind of gets every all these. I mean, the Big Ten, the SEC, the ACC, the Big Eight. I mean, some of these conferences are obviously in better standing than others. But get all these people at a table. What is what is good for the game? Where, where do we go from here? Um, because I'm telling you what you're going to have. You're going to have some of these teams who have bought into NIL, literally and figuratively. Uh, they're going to begin separating themselves. Because I, I, I'm telling you, if you're sitting in, in the den with a mom or grandmom or father or grandfather of a five-star running back from, you know, um, Winder, Georgia, and Dabo's selling him on tradition and brand, Saban selling tradition and brand, and somebody selling him, you know, a million dollars a year, I mean, that, that's life-changing money. And who knows where that kid goes from there? There is no NFL contract guaranteed. But if you can put, you know, life-changing money in the bank, you take that every time over tr- tradition and culture. And I think we've got to find some salary cap, some, you know, formal way to create parity within. Um, the, the reason the NFL is such a good football or, or such good football is nearly every game is a one-score game. I mean, you can call it football socialism, and you're probably right. Who drafts first every year? The worst teams. I mean, they have salary caps. They have, you know, um, you, you can't let but one team. Now, some teams are better run than others, and, you know, the good, the, the well-run teams normally make the playoffs. The poorly run teams normally don't. But it's not because one team has such a monetary advantage over the others. NFL's done a much better job than baseball. I mean, baseball, the Yankees, the Mets, the Dodgers, they have these huge spending advantages because of the big markets, you know, they compete in. The Braves would be, I don't want to say the anomaly, but they'd be somewhat of an outlier the way they've been able to consistently compete despite being the 13th, the 14th. They just seem to be a run payroll. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a well-run baseball team. You and I have one team that we pull for that is extremely well-run, and that is the Atlanta Braves. Speaking of the Braves, I've been a Braves fan a long, long time. Then we'll take a break, Josh, get back to babbling Joe Biden. <laughs> but um, I've been a Braves fan a long time. The best season I think I've ever seen a Braves player have is the second season Maddox was in Atlanta. I think he was 21-6 and with a 1.85 ERA. Don't check me on that. But his his ERA was below two. It was a run better than the league average. And I remember thinking to myself, man, if a cat's ERA is one entire run better than the league average is, that's pretty phenomenal. That would that was the best baseball season I've ever seen a Brave have. Now I get he doesn't play every day, but when he did play, he was lights out. Uh, but if they played on the West Coast and somebody hit a two run homer, you go to bed. He ain't give it up to. <laughs> I mean, you, you may scrap one off mm-hmm. of him some way. Ronald Acuna may be having the best season I've ever seen an Atlanta Brave have. He has a chance. Now he didn't do it. A chance at forty home runs, seventy stolen bases. 330 batting average. I think he's 334 today. 100 RBIs and 200 hits. <laughs> That's just crazy. That's stupid <laughs> off the charts when it comes to, uh, you know, five-star kid, five-star player. We talk a lot about that in college. I mean, he would be a five-star recruit if he were signing a college football scholarship. I mean, he runs, he hits for power, hits for average, plays defense. Just, I mean, 70 stolen bases, the chance to hit 40 home runs, 200 hits, 100 RBIs, and batting 330. I mean, that's just, that's off the charts. 
in every um in every way, and, shape, or form. And speaking of Braves players that we love, they retired Andrew Jones' number this weekend at Truist Park. I saw that and um had a good crowd yeah. there for that. Yeah. Who doesn't brain. love Andrew? Yeah, you're right. Had that permanent smile on his face. Yeah. Sometimes he'd make you mad because he struck out and you thought he was smiling. But that was that permanent smile on his face. But they showed some of those highlights, and, man, that brought back some great memories. He was awesome. Yeah, but he couldn't. That, that Acuna, he can hit. I'm telling you. That, oh, yeah. That, that, that cat can hit. 843-661-0937. Congratulations. And let's do this. Let's make congratulations, Lenore Sellers. And congratulations to the entire PD for producing a product as good on the field and apparently equally as good I'm off the field. He is the future at Gamecock quarterback. I mean, there, there is no doubt about that. He is a, I mean, he has a chance to be a very special player. And um, as a Gamecock fan, I hope he is. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. Oh, he Dude, did that, it. He did that, that is weird. The I mean, creepy that, whisper again. That is weird. That's a problem. He whispered it. But that's he, concerning. I mean, brings up, yeah, Dog that's, that's, that's deeply, that is a man out of it. I mean, that, that is a man in the last stages of being allowed to, you know, to function publicly, right? I mean, it, for those families out there who have dealt with somebody with serious uh, dementia, that you know there's a point in time when you say, hey, uh, you don't tell him this or her this, but you tell the other loved ones, hey, we, we can't do that anymore. I mean, we can't expose him to that anymore. We can't let him out there anymore. He can't be allowed to do this anymore. Well, you tell him. I'm not telling him. We'll lie to him. You know, we'll tell him that this is the reason or that's the reason. And you cook up these stories. But but it's all in his best interest. You love him or you love her. But you know their diminished state. And you do things to not allow them to hurt themselves or somebody else. And that's where we are as a nation. And how in God's name can somebody defend that? I'll ask a better question. How can you vote for the person that 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 stands at a podium and addresses a public crowd like that. It, it's bizarre to me. I mean, I understand, you know, um, well, Trump's an arrogant jerk and he's uh, narcissistic and he's all these, but I mean, he's he's not incoherent. I mean, he may be wrong, he may be uh, braggadocious, but he's not incoherent. Biden is actually incoherent when it comes to addressing the public, and it's getting worse day by day by day. I mean, it's obvious now. There's a reason they keep his schedule very tight and limited. They don't let him speak to the public unless required. And I guess when you go as president to Vietnam and you have these joint press conferences, you're required to address the media in some way, shape, or form, but it gets a little worse every time. I mean, it really and truly, it seems to me, to get a little more concerning every single time. There's a human side of me that feels sorry for the guy. I mean, there really is. I mean, there's something about me that goes, wow, man, you can't let that dude just stand there and struggle um, that way. Now, the embarrassment to the nation, I mean, it's kind of a symbol to me of a nation in decline, pretty dramatic decline when we, the people, would elect that guy. Um, and you wonder how many votes he'd gotten if Zuckerberg spent $200 million. I mean, you really do. I mean, you, you know, you look at that. I mean, what inspires anybody? Well, they didn't vote for Biden. They voted against Trump. 81 million voted against Trump. I mean, nobody voted for Biden, but but it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I think it's getting to the point of a national emergency. I mean, Pelosi announces over the weekend she's 83 but running again because the city of San Francisco needs her. I guess we need more dumpsters to pick up crap, human feces, and um, and needles. You know, maybe that's what she's running on. You know, this next this next um. 
I mean, if I don't run and, and San Francisco doesn't enjoy the benefit of my seniority, who will know where to go, you know, increase the, the number of waste containers to put the human feces on the street and the syringes and needles and all the drug paraphernalia that goes along? I mean, it's just it's, it's absurd to me why the people in San Francisco would agree to vote for She's not the only liberal in San Francisco. I mean, there's some 45-year-old liberal male or female who would do exactly what San Francisco wants done and what they believe in fundamentally. But they're going to send an 83-year-old woman, kind of a, a permanent stroke face. I mean, you've seen how she, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. It's got a kind of a permanent look to it. I mean, it's a little bit freaky, but that comes with age. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, but she's 83 years old and now she's running for re-election. Mitch McConnell, I mean, let's be bipartisan. Let's be fair. Mitch McConnell stares in a camera twice. He has 14% of the approval of the Republican base. They had a caucus meeting, and everybody I heard from said they're for Mitch. I mean, Lindsey Graham, with all, you know, he's our guy. Lindsey said, you know, I'm for Mitch until Mitch decides to, you know, step aside as majority leader. Really? I mean, have you seen him freeze in front of the camera twice? And it's like episode Diane Feinstein. I mean, doesn't know she's in the world. Really does not, honestly. I mean, if you go to Feinstein this morning and said, uh, Madam Senator, what day of the week is it? Don't know. Don't have any idea. I mean, there's no way Diane Feinstein today can tell you what day of the week it is. Could Biden? There, there's a good trivia question. We don't know the answer. I mean, if, if we were to call the White House this morning and say, can we talk to the president? Hold on. And they get the president. What day of the week is it, sir? I say there's a 50% chance he gets it right. Hmm. I mean, there's a 0% with Feinstein. There's probably a 50% with McConnell. Depends on what, you know, kind of mood he's having or where, where he is in his cycling of medication, I would imagine. But, I mean, with this, this nation is being run by a bunch of, you know, people in decline. And, and we're continuing to elect these people. Why is Joe Biden a legitimate candidate for president after hearing that speech? I mean, that would be a disqualifier if we were fair-minded people. I mean, if we were people who deserved, excuse me, demanded uh, accountability from our elected officials and Biden gave that 58 minutes, that would be a disqualifier. Remember Howard Dean, you know, yelling? And, oh, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's... That disqualified him. Sure. I mean, it, it, the people say, we can't have a moron, uh, somebody acting like that. Can't have somebody acting as loose him. and fast. And as all he, he did was yell, yeah. Yeah. You know, but back <laughs> in the day when we demanded accountability of our elected officials, but now it doesn't matter. He's got a D beside his name. It doesn't matter. If he has Alzheimer's or dementia, it doesn't matter. I mean, he's got a D beside his name. There was another part of that speech where the president talked about going to bed. Yeah, I'm going to go to yeah, bed. Yeah, I'll find that in a second because <laughs> he says, um, I mean, he tells people the truth. I, I guess the truth serum, you know, that they are, <laughs> they, they gave him that day. But anyway, it's just, um, it's bizarre to me. And he talks about John Wayne movies and, um, I mean, he, the proverbial dog faced pony soldier. That's not the first time he's pulled that out. I mean, somebody said Biden was a liar. I mean, remember during the 2020 presidential campaign, and he called the person a dog-faced stone, uh, dog-faced a pony soldier. So yeah, well, I mean, a dog-faced pony soldier, lying. Excuse me, lying, lying dog-faced, dog-faced pony person. soldier. Yeah. That comes from a John Wayne movie. Doesn't that want to make you? Doesn't that uh, make you want to vote Democrat, Josh? Not really. But, I mean, as a 25-year-old <laughs> young person, that doesn't frustrate you that we've got these these political leaders that are 80, 85, 90 years old. And they appear to be gaining. I mean, there will be a lot of 25-year-old young men and women voting for Joe Biden. That's what I can't get my arms around.
I mean, if you're 25 years old and you're voting for your future and the control of the, the government of the nation that you call home and you vote for that guy, really? I mean, it's, it's bizarre to me why anybody young, I mean, write in somebody, you know, f- yeah. find a younger, Repu- excuse me, a younger um, Democrat. I'm trying to go, how, how many Republicans, I mean, if we, if we listed those who seem to be out of it the most, I mean, I think at the top is Feinstein. I mean, I think it's clear she is absolutely incoherent. I mean, there's hardly a moment that goes, she could not give a speech. I mean, she just couldn't. She's that out of it. But she won't leave because they lose a vote on judiciary. And if they lose a vote on judiciary, it has to be replaced by 60 senators. And there's no way they'll replace her. So they can't advance these judges. McConnell. I mean, you're not going to see McConnell resign because you've got a Democrat governor. I know there's a debate about the legislation that passed saying he's got to, uh, you know, he's got to appoint the the nominee of the, but that's, there will be a legal debate there. And I don't know how that works itself out. Um, but McConnell could resign his leadership and stay as a member of the Senate. I mean, to me, that would be the right thing to do. To, you know, you're kind of like, Hey, I'm, I'm in no position, no condition, forget position. I'm in no condition to be minority leader. I don't need to be, I mean, Forget 14% approval ratings. I mean, that, that should in, incriminate you enough or indict you enough to not want to be a uh, majority leader. You got this voting base out there called Republican primary voters, and 86% don't much care for you. But you're going to keep getting the – I mean, that, that really tells you about how many America firsters there are in Washington. He's got a 14% approval rating amongst Republican voters, but he's the highest-ranking Republican not named Kevin McCarthy in America. I mean, McCarthy's numbers are, what, 42, 3, 4, 5%, which is reasonable. I mean, you know, uh, primary voters kind of, um, I mean, they get, uh, they get not extreme. They get a little one-sided in their, um, in their beliefs. So McCarthy's numbers at 45-ish aren't concerning or alarming. 14 is pretty alarming. So why doesn't McConnell step aside as minority leader, maintain his, um, his position in the U.S. Senate, in hopes that, you know, black our backseer is it by Bashir. Bashir, Bashir. Governor Bashir of Kentucky gets beat by the attorney generals running against him. And then, you know, you get a Republican to be a, a Republican governor points his replacement. But the, these folks stay there forever. I mean, they just stay there forever. And when you stay there forever and you're forced to give speeches, if 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 Biden was a backbench congressman, I mean they, they could hide him. I mean, they really could. They they could put him away. Pelosi's had a taste of the limelight. You're not going to tell her to get in the back of the line. Now, she did give up her leadership position. Um, I wonder what she would have done had the Democrats stayed in charge of the House. I mean, she, she, she professed herself to be somewhat altruistic. And in the name of team spirit, it's time for me to move along and allow some of these younger leaders to come. And I think Akeem Jeffries is now minority leader in the, uh, in the House. But I wonder if Pelosi had so – would she have so easily stepped aside had the Republicans not gained control of the House? I doubt it. To believe that Nancy Pelosi would take herself out of the running I – mean, there's a difference in taking yourself out of the running for minority leader than there is taking yourself out of the running for Speaker of the House. But over the weekend, she announced her reelection campaign. I may try to find – because Pelosi doesn't sound to be out – she doesn't seem to be incoherent. I mean, she struggles at times, but she's 83. I mean, a lot of 83-year-olds struggle, especially when your job is talking and remembering. 
listening, talking, and remembering are three important things you have to do as a politician. And you know, you're not quite as good a rememberer when you're 83 as you were uh, when you weren't. 843 <laughs> Is anything like being the decider? Well, the remember yeah, George W. Bush said he was the decider. Yeah. Well, Nancy Pelosi said she's the rememberer. Remember. Yeah. <laughs> let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Okay, let's be a little more. I mean, I, we need a bit more diplomatic and respectful of the office. And, and I agree with that. We kind of got off on a tangent and saying things that, that we probably should not say about the leader of the free world. Mm. So let's go to the official White House feed, whitehouse.gov. Ready? I mean, this got the um, the the big lady doing the sign language and all, you know, mm-hmm. off to the uh, off to the right. Yep. So got the official White House uh, insignia. Okay. So they can't be embarrassed about this. I mean, I got to confess, what, one of those blurbs I just played came from townhall.com. Uh, uh, one of the others came from... Uh, one of the, I'm not, it wasn't cat turd, but it might've been somebody, <laughs> somebody similar. Cat turd got a billion dollars. Uh, cat turd didn't get a billion, but cat turd probably gets a lot of money from Twitter for the number of likes oh, yeah. and, and tweets or retweets that he has. I, I follow cat turd. So, so let's, <laughs> well, what, what, how do you name anyway? I know. Uh, I and, know. And he's got a following. He's he got does. a huge following and a, and a big voice. <laughs> so, um, so let's go to the whitehouse.gov, the official feed. Got big lady on the right um, doing the sign language and uh, 22 seconds because we owe the president this. I mean, we owe okay. him um, a proper accounting, not not the town hall edited version, not the um, the cat turd uh, maybe edited version, but rather one officially sign language and all. You ready, Josh? Ready. How hmm. many how many times have we ever heard a president? I don't know about you, but I'm going to bed. I mean, I, I guess you tell your kids or your wife that. Right. But I mean, he's standing at a podium in Hanoi, Vietnam, with the um the Vietnamese flag and the American flag, and he says, "You know, I don't know about you, but I'm going to bed." And who's, I mean, who's he taking orders from? I have no idea. Well, I mean, his staff, you know that. I mean, his staff is the Obama. But he's acolytes. the boss. Well, he's the commander in chief yeah, of he's the United deep, States. He's a deeply military. demented human being, and and I want to express sympathy to those who deal with dementia, and, and those who deal with Alzheimer's. I mean, you know, I've had families that, uh, you know, I never have personally. But I know families that have had a hell of a time, you know, dealing with a loved one who's, you know, um, in decline because of dementia, Alzheimer's. And it's obvious now that there's something wrong with Joe Biden. I mean, there's something significantly wrong with Joe Biden and it needs to be addressed. And 50% of Americans still say, you know, he's good enough. He's in good enough shape to vote. Is, is, let me ask you this. This would be an interesting question to ponder. Is despising Trump and giving this guy the keys to the liquor cabinet responsible. I mean, I don't think you could accuse, we can accuse Trump of being old. I mean, he's 78, 77, 78 years old. I may try to find a, um, a clip of Trump on the campaign trail. But there's nothing about Donald Trump that leads you to believe he's in significant cognitive decline. I mean, there's just not. He's overweight. He used too many fish sandwiches. Okay, fair enough. Um, he's not as good a golfer as he says he is. Okay, fair enough. Um he, you know, he misrepresented his weight on his indictment paper. Okay, fair enough. I mean, all of that's fair enough. I mean, that, that's fair game. It's um, it's incidental when it comes to dementia or not, but it's fair game. But but how many people believe that Donald Trump doesn't have a grasp of the conversation he's having? How many times have you heard Donald Trump say, you know, uh, let me do what my handlers are telling me to do, and then look in the camera and say. You know, I'm, I'm going to bed. I can tell you what I'm doing. I'm, I mean, that's just weird. That's mm-hmm. bizarre to me. Um, you know, I believe this about Vietnam. I believe that about 
uh, Vietnam. I wish we'd done this in Vietnam. We're going to try to do better here in Vietnam. But but he stands before an American and Vietnamese flag and says, I'm tired and I'm ready to go to bed. And then the, the, the press corps yells out, you know, um, I guess questions that he doesn't have the ability to answer. And, and you know, the Sunday morning shows, the propaganda state-run media of the DNC doesn't even cover this. I mean, a president of the United States said in, at a press gathering, you know, I'm tired and ready to go to bed. And nobody on television gives it any coverage. None. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. Put me in my place this morning. I was trying to argue that the events of 2008 were more pro- or equally profound. I don't think I ever said more profound. Equally profound to 9-11 and the pandemic. And Rev said, no, man. I mean, people lost their livelihoods and fortunes. And, I mean, the government repositioned itself and what it's willing to do in regards to putting the economy back on its feet. But 9-11 was innocent people being killed. COVID, innocent people being killed. I don't know how many... I mean, I would imagine there was somebody out there who thought they were wealthy and realized they weren't, jumped out of a building or took their own lives or whatever. But that's an interesting point you made. The point I was trying to make is how chaotic a young person's life has been as an American. I mean, my son was born in, my, my oldest kid was born in 1990. That means that he is seen as a young kid, 9-11, as a little older, uh, I guess a young adult, the events of 2008. And then as a full-blown adult, the pandemic. And those are three nation-altering events in, what, 20 years of one another? 19 mm-hmm. years of one another? That's I mean, that's quite the ride, is all I tried to say. But you're right, Reb. Um, very few lives were lost when the economy blew up in 2008. Um, innocent people died at 9-11 and then eventually a 20-year war. And, and obviously we know many people died as a result of the pandemic. Let's go to the phone. Tim and Florence. Good morning, Tim. You're on the air. Hey, good morning. Um, I just want to know if everybody that voted for Joe Biden, they got to be asking themselves the question, who did they really vote for? Who's giving Joe Biden his orders? And uh, that's all I wanted to say. And, well, do want to say one more thing. Uh, thank you for what y'all do, and God bless America. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. I mean, I've maintained that the Obama acolytes are the ones running the joint. Um, you know, th- there's kind of an interesting, it, it's, it's real inquisitive if you'll go down the road of trying to understand what Obama was motivated by. I- I've got a theory on the Tucker Carlson, you know, I had drug-induced sex in the back of a limo with, uh, with Obama. Uh, a guy who cropped it back in South Carolina um, said he went to Chicago and he ended up with Obama, and they had drug and I don't know if the guy's telling the truth or not. Actually, a uh, buddy of mine listened to it over the weekend and watched it over the weekend, sent me a tell. You believe that? I said, I don't know if I do or not. I mean, I don't know if I believe it or not. But Obama was a radical. I mean, he was, a, he was an absolute radical American president. And the American people, for whatever reason, uh, bought into this centrist, you know, a uniner, can't we all get along and um, I guess the Democrats are better at selling themselves as that than the Republicans are. Um, I am all for, and I said this Sumter, uh, excuse me, I said it uh, Thursday night when I spoke in Sumter. I'm all for uniting the Republican Party. I mean, it doesn't hurt. I mean, it doesn't help that Chris Sununu comes on, you know, some of these talk shows because these guys want to be, I mean, there's a Chris Christie, Sununu, um, Aza, I mean, they're, they're frat boy Republicans. I mean, they really are. They're frat boy Republicans 
Um, they don't believe in much of anything. Keep the kind of keep um keep the military industrial complex whole. Um, you know, do the traditional things the neocons. I mean, their generation has believed in. But um, but you know, Sununu to me makes a fool of himself when he says that Trump nor Biden can win. I mean, to me, they're the only two people that can win. Now, updated. You ready? Uh, remember last week, I think Friday, we touched on the betting odds. Mm-hmm. And Biden was at plus 190. Trump's at plus 240. Um, Biden today is plus 198. So the odds of Joe Biden winning have gone down just a bit. Plus 198 means if you put 100 bucks down and Biden wins, you win 198 bucks. If you put 100 bucks down to Trump wins, you win $240. So Biden is still the slim favorite in all of this. And um, something happened on Meet the Press yesterday. Chuck Todd's last episode of Meet the Press. Something happened Finally. yesterday. One of the Democrat strategists that's a you know, frequent guest on Meet the Press said you know, that they could easily see Trump beating Joe Biden. And I don't know what the Democrats are trying to drum up. I mean, that there's, you know, are they trying to convince their own ilk that Biden needs to be replaced. I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, the the appearances, like in Hanoi, certainly don't help. I mean, they obviously don't help. You know, believing this guy can make it for another what year and three months, year and two months, and then another um, four years. Is there is there an odd? Uh, I wonder if you could get odds on the likelihood of Biden getting elected and dying in his second term, or being so um, cognitively diminished that he doesn't know he's the president. There's a better example. I mean, has America gotten to a place where it's okay? Because if you think about it, the Democrats, if you're Obama, not the Democrats, that's unfair. Because I don't know that this applies to every Democrat. But if you're Obama, what better scenario? I mean, you got a duncey old man. He's always been a bit duncey. But, but now he's duncey and demented. And you're allowed to kind of, you know, blame everything on him. You know, Joe doesn't know any better. Joe's never been the sharpest knife in the drawer. And in fact, I, want, I think Obama was on record of saying, don't underestimate Joe's ability to mess things yeah, up. And, and, and Obama also said, when asked about a third term, he said, I mean, if I could sit in the basement with pajamas on and kind of pull the strings like a puppet master, of course I'd be interested in that. Well, I mean, I don't think he's in the basement. Uh, I don't think his house at the Hampton requires him to be in a basement. His house on the ocean, um, I might add. So house in the Hamptons on the ocean. One of the biggest believers in climate change ever. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. I sense hypocrisy there, but it doesn't matter. It's Obama. Yeah. yeah. And he can get by. But no, my theory on, you know, the, 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 the gay guy who said Obama and I had drug induced sex in the back of a limo in Chicago. I just think my, I stick by my theory that it's Tucker basically saying, okay, if there are no rules, there are no rules. And we better learn to play by the same rules as everybody else saying, you know, if we can find somebody out there credible or not, we'll put them on the biggest forum conservative media has and let them just say whatever it is they choose choose to say. But, yeah, yesterday, uh, an African-American strategist who's on Meet the Press a lot on behalf of the, um, I mean, they call it fair and ballot. You know, anyway, it's, um, they don't even allow the counterpoint now. I mean, there was a lady there from the American Enterprise Institute. She's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She's on there a lot. I think her last name may be Pretka, Pretka, something like that. Um, got real designer glasses, so you know she's cool. A um, little bit like, I, I think they have lenses in. I don't know if you saw this or not, but a lot of the um, a lot of the NBA players are wearing designer glasses 
but they don't need glasses, so they don't that. have any lens in, and they're paying like eighteen hundred bucks per pair of you know uh, designer glasses with no lens. <laughs> Apparently, that's a trend. Well, I mean, it is. It's a fashion trend, I guess. But um, but back to the um, back to the strategist on on Meet the Press. Um, he said that there's a pretty good chance Biden could lose to Trump, and everybody like whoa 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 whoa. You don't, that's not why we have you here. And, um, and the lady with the fashion glasses from American enterprise, the, the Sunday morning shows are useless. You know, it's kind of interesting, Reb. There was a day that many people who were curious about American politics, they turned tuned in to the Sunday morning shows because they thought those people knew what they were talking about. I mean, they, they were insiders. You know, if Robert Novak sat down with, uh, you know, uh, g- give me a liberal. I mean, Bill Press. I mean, you thought there was an honest attempt to try and tell you what's happening in Washington today. It's total propaganda today. Um, Chuck Todd is being replaced. Uh, ratings. And I don't know that you can blame Todd because I just think the industry, that sector of the media has lost such credibility that half the country, I mean, it, it, it amazes me. And I, I don't want to misstate my my political understandings but I do believe that I have a, a vague understanding of what's happening in the world politically. I mean, I, I do. I think that if you came to me and asked me uh, 20 questions, I could have reasonable answers for 18. I mean, you'd probably ask me about one or two things that I don't know much about. And I would say, I don't, I don't know. I hadn't read much about, about that. But if you ask me 20 topical issues in American politics today, I think I could give you a, a reasonable answer on about 18. Well, I know I'm in the minority, but, but what I, the question I ask myself when I walk, because I see through that nonsense on Sunday morning so easily, I kind of chuckle at myself, and I'll remember things they say, and I'll make a note or two to myself to remind me, you know, during the week we may go back and, and talk about something they said on Meet the Press. But I do ask my, myself this question a lot. What if you ask those same 20 people or the average American? I mean, not that I'm average. But because I host a radio show, it requires me. I mean, if, if I'm doing a remotely decent job, then I've got to know 15. i got to know twice as many as you do. I mean, it's not your job. You know, people out there are living their lives, doing their thing, working their job. Um, you know, their job doesn't require them reading political every day or reading the Wall Street Journal politics section or reading the New York Times editorial board. I mean, that's not what you, you should be doing. But, but I, you know, I wonder because I think I look at it in a different sort of way. When I watch Meet the Press and I catch myself laughing or I watch Stephanopoulos and it's obvious to me what he's trying to do with George Carl when he's hosting, John Carl, I'm sorry, what he's trying to do. And it's obvious what the guests, what game the guests are playing and, and why they've got this Republican congressman from New York, you know, to kind of give the, uh, the Republicans side of that. He hates Trump. I mean, he's one of the Republicans that voted impeach Trump, but, but he's there as a Republican so it's easy for me to see through that, and it's easy for me to not be uh, tricked or misled by any of that. But but I wonder about the one, the person that can only answer three of the 20 questions, four of the 20 questions, five of the 20 questions. In other words, if you asked me 20 political questions, and, I, and I'm able because of what I do to answer 18, um, and that's my filter for watching Meet the Press or this week with or CNN with Jake Tapper, any of those shows. I mean, it's so obvious to me what they're doing. It's almost like I know the good guy wins. You know, it's almost like watching a rerun of a movie where, where you know the hero wins in the end. 
I mean, the good cowboy always wins in the end. You know, somebody comes and saves the damsel in distress at the end. So when I'm watching it, I'm like, well, I know where we're headed here. I mean, I know what Donna Brazil's about to say. I know why Chris Christie's there. Uh, it, it's obvious why that question was asked. But I can answer 18 of the 20 questions. How oblivious is the person who's watching that that can only answer three or four of those questions? That That's my concern. And that's why I just feel like I have to watch to be aware of what it is they're trying to sell the American public because they're not in the business of telling you the truth. They're in the business of selling you a narrative. I don't buy the narrative. But I spend, you know, 20 hours a week reading about this nonsense. You shouldn't expect me to buy the narrative. If I go to the mechanic today and my car is making noise, I don't know why it's making a noise. I don't have a damn clue. You should, right? Because you've got a sign on your door that says, we fix broken down cars. So, so my car is making a noise. I don't go to Chuck Todd. I don't go to CNN. I go to the mechanic. And I wonder how many mechanics, I'm using that figuratively, I wonder how many mechanics watch Meet the Press and buy to any degree what those people are trying to sell. And that's how Biden gets elected. I mean, the, you know, the majority of people who watch that show can answer three or four of the 20 questions. And they're not, they've not been made aware how, you know, inside. I'll ask you this. This is a better one. Everything we played this morning of Biden stumbling and bumbling, sound like Chris Berman, um, every stumbling, bumbling episode of Joe Biden today was on Twitter. It's nowhere else. I mean, it's not in the Real Clear Politics. It's not in the National Review. It's not in the New York Times. It's not in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, every mm-hmm. every episode you've heard this morning, those blips and blurbs of Biden struggling and appearing to be incoherent in trying to think through whatever it is he's trying to think through, every one of those has been on, on Twitter. And it's been a conservative feed by and large. Now, that last was the White House feed. I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea why they allowed um, that to make its way on the public airways, unless it's kind of a feed made available to the public and somebody, you know, downloads it and puts it on their, on their Twitter account. But you would have never, I mean, if, if Jack Dorsey still on Twitter, that would have been censored. There's no way you'll hear Biden say, I'm ready to go to bed. The president of the United States was standing before a, a congregation of members of the, of the world media, the global media gathered in Hanoi. And the president said to their face, I'm ready to go to bed. And nobody talked about it yesterday <laughs> on the Sunday morning shows. I mean, that, that's earth-shattering news. Right. I mean, the president, after he called somebody a lying stone pony or whatever, no, stone ponies were Springsteen and Bon Jovi played. What is it? A lying, pony soldier. Look. Yeah. Uh, a lying dog face, dog face pony, pony soldier. soldier. A lying dog face pony soldier followed by I'm ready to go to bed. None of the media picked that up. He talked about taking orders from somebody. Too. Yeah, I yeah that you know, um, who am I taking orders from? Uh, you know, I'm ready to go to bed. That, that's not a story, really? No, it's not a story. And it wouldn't be a story if Jack Dorsey owned Twitter. You would have never, ever seen um, that, that storyline. But, but thank God for Elon Musk. And I mean that sincerely. Right. Um, thank God for Twitter. Because now we're allowed to at least have some exposure to the other side of the story and um, and it's scary. I mean, it, it's 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 fearful to watch that guy try to operate as as former presidents historically have and struggle the way he does. I mean, it, it it freaks me out. He's the guy that we trust to make the big decision in the big moment if it ever comes about, and he's ready to go to bed. Take a break. 
Back in a few. Now, see, I said I was going to do something and we didn't do it because I get the busy head syndrome and we <laughs> lose focus. And uh, let, let's do this because it's college football season and we have rankings, right? So let's rank the person we think is most cognitively impaired today making decisions on behalf of the American people. Here are the candidates. You ready? Okay. And Josh, you and Rev got to help me here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in all fairness, Fetterman had a stroke. Right, That's I mean, true. you know, but but they still elected him, and he still has issues. Um, it's not delegation hour any longer; it's the delegation, delegation hour. Um, and and we can, you know, but but I, I hesitate to use Fetterman because he's literally a sick man. Now he doesn't have any business in the Senate because once again, what the senators need to be able to do: talk, listen, and understand. What do people who just had strokes have trouble doing? Talk, listening, and understanding. So the three things required for a senator are the three things that he struggles with most. No biggie, says the people of Pennsylvania. He ain't Dr. Oz. So we send Fetterman. So you've got Fetterman as a younger man, but we know struggling from trying to recover from a stroke. In the name of bipartisanship, we've got Mitch McConnell, right? I mean, he who gazes off into the abyss at times. If McConnell was at Olive Garden, and somebody said, tell me when you've had enough cheese, you may not be able to get out of the door because of all the cheese. You know how they'll say, do you want cheese on your salad? They'll keep grinding. And they'll say, tell me when. Well, I mean, you know, they there could be a cheese shortage at Olive Garden if McConnell's the guy that they're waiting on to say enough because he could be having one of those moments when he's staring out of the abyss. But he's on our team, right? So we cut him a little slack. Is he? I'm not cutting him any slack. There you go. Is he? Uh, is he really on our team? What? Wh- where, where are the teams is what uh, the better question right. is. So you've got McConnell, and then you've got clearly the winner is Diane Feinstein. But let's give Feinstein credit. She's 90, right? I mean, she's, she's 90 years old. I don't know that she understands she's still a senator. I mean, I really don't. Um, well, do you remember, I think her staff announced she wasn't going to seek re-election, and then a reporter asked her about it, and she goes, ah, oh, we haven't announced that. I don't know. Well, I mean, no. It's every day. I mean, if, they, if, if you were able to speak to Dianne Feinstein, it would, it would probably freak you out to know what level of coherence she really has. So we've got McConnell, we've got Feinstein, and then we've got Joe Biden, who's just the president, so it doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> of, of those four. I mean, we'll call it the Mount Rushmore of cognitively cognitively declining politicians today. I mean, I think Feinstein's one. I mean, I think she is the 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 most severely unable, if that's a good way to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, I think it's close. I think it's close between all three. Yeah, I, I look at Fetterman a little bit differently because he's a younger guy, and th- there's a medical history here. I mean, we Fetterman admitted he had a stroke. During the election, remember we did a debate, or he did a debate with Oz, and he just kind of, I mean, I don't know what you call it. We could go back and play some of that now, but he won the damn election. I mean, he won the election. <laughs> that one where they introduced him, he said, hello, good night. Yeah. I mean, the first two words out of his mouth, three words, hello, good night. <laughs> it's, it's like somebody said, hey, John, when they introduce you, say hello. And when it's time, you know, and he just like skipped the entire debate. Hello, and I feel for the guy. Well, I mean, I of course mean, you I do. Really do. And he should not be in the Senate. That's right. I mean, he should not be in the Senate. But the Democrats don't care. It's 51. You know, that's the majority. But I mean, it's, it's about getting the majority. And if you got to prop him up, we'll prop him up. Um, here's the better question. 
what if, what if, I mean, it's unlikely because I don't think Fetterman's life is in danger. I mean, I think there's a question about how much he'll recover. And once again, I hate we're doing this. I mean, he deserves respect. He deserved time to, to go get himself back together and figure out a way to get his um, cognitive abilities back to a place where he can listen, speak, and understand. Uh, but he's not there, and we know he's not there. No sane person believes that Fetterman should be in the uh, in the Senate. Am I missing a Republican? Because I, w- I don't want to be. I want to be fair-minded here. I don't want to be three Democrats and one Republican. Am I missing a Republican the only other- who has at times appeared? And I know what Democrats are thinking. Trump. Trump's never appeared this way. I mean, it's hard. He hey, he's an older guy and he's overweight. Okay, fair enough. I can't argue that he's an older guy and he's overweight. That, that would be concerning. I mean, you'd like to see an older guy take a little better care of himself. But Trump has never shown the disability or the inability to speak. I mean, he's always been able to express himself. And you can say, well, I don't like what he said. Fair enough. But you, at least you understood what he said. I've never heard Trump say, I'm ready to go to bed. Or, you know, lying dog-faced pony soldier. Or, you know, well, whatever it is when he kind of mumbles and and stumbles. And I got a better question. Why is the sun always in Joe Biden's eyes? <laughs> always squinting or something. I mean, it's like, is, is his eyes open or closed? Is he playing possum? I mean, is he is he trying to pretend to be asleep or or not? And, and I think, I mean, I'm going to be honest, guys. I think it's fair to pick on Biden. And I think it's fair to pick on uh, uh, Feinstein. And I think it's fair to pick on McConnell. I mean, those people have decided to stay in public service after the age of 80. And I, I just think once you exceed the age of 80, somebody who loves you should sit down and say, hey, Mitch, we've done well. We came up here with nothing. I mean, we're, we're you know, we, we got into public service because we want to get rich, um, and we've done that. So it's time to go back to the, the foothills of Kentucky. We can buy a yearling from Secretary or Seattle's Lou, right, because we're in horse country. And, uh, and we've done exceedingly well. I think McConnell's net worth is $40 million, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Uh, his wife has been, been along for the ride. Uh, what's her name? Elaine Chow, if I'm not mistaken. You know, she was the, um, I think Trump may have pointed her to some uh, real prominent position. I think so. Yeah. Um, just because. I got to believe yeah. it's, oh, one yeah. of, it's one of the reasons. So Let's who's number two? Job. Uh, Biden. Okay. You think Biden is more impaired than McConnell or, or Fetterman? I do. And you agree we're looking at Fetterman a little bit different. I do. Because yeah. we've got a medical situation. We know that he had a stroke. We know that strokes impair your ability to communicate. There's, a, there's, there's clarity of understanding in why John Fetterman struggles the way he does. Uh, it doesn't, still doesn't. I mean, it reflects the, the, the country being in some or to some degree um, in decline. Is somebody on the phone? Yep. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. Uh, good morning, fellas. Uh, got a really good show this morning. Um, uh, Ken, the the ones that we really need to worry about are not the ones that that are suffering from dementia. It's those that aren't and are passing all this these these foolhardy kind of uh, programs and things. And uh, you know, earlier you were talking about uh, the aliens. Well, you know, I'm I'm convinced that the aliens really aren't interested in any of our technology because they can uh, surely do things much better than us but what i think they're really interested in are our resources and there's a great twilight zone from with old rod serling from many 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 years ago where the aliens actually i think they come into new york and they get off their spacecraft and everybody's all concerned and worried and they say well we're here to serve man and they start 
providing all of their uh, some of their uh, technology to us. But there are always the skeptics out there wondering why they're really here because they start loading people up on their spacecraft and taking them back to their planets. Well, some of them get hold of a manual and it's in their uh, code and they decode this manual. And at the very end of the show, these people are lined up getting on the spacecraft and they realize what this manual is. It's titled, uh, How to Serve Man. And the guy says, it's a cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is a good one. I, I don't know if you've ever seen that one, but that's a great one. That is a good one. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Yeah. Chuck Grassley's 90. Uh, I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've not heard him speak a lot. He does appear to um read verbatim. I mean, some staffer puts something in front of him and he kind of reads it. Um it would be interesting. I've often wondered this. What if we outlaw teleprompters? I mean, what if we made illegal teleprompters? No, you're not reading a speech. What do you believe? What do you sincerely feel in your bones? Have you dedicated uh, enough time to commit it to memory? I mean, do you remember some of these things? Um, I think Revel vouched for me. I've never written a word down. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I did. Yeah, I did. I, there, there was something that I did when I was lieutenant governor, and I wanted to do it a certain way. And somebody in the office on aging said, no, nah, you can't do it that way, man. I mean, this... The, the, this language is precisely what they want said, and you can't kind of make it up as you go. Quick story. Got a buddy of mine. Now, he's not a buddy of mine. He's a mentor of mine, and he was a delegate to the United Nations, and he was going to speak at the UN. Rev knows his story. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, uh, he, gets his, he gets all of the, uh, the speech, and it's, you know, a thousand words or whatever. It's to take him 13 minutes to give the speech, whatever, 12 minutes, however much time he's allotted and he's to represent the United States of America in the, um, the chamber of the United nations and George W. Bush appointed this guy to do this job. And, um, so, so he gets in his hotel that night and he starts marking through words <laughs> and he says that just didn't sound right. You know, I'd rather say it this way and that way. So he gets there the next morning. He kind of takes his place in line. It's a couple of hours before it's his turn. And what one of the assistants to the, you know, the, uh, the American ambassador to the United Nations says, are you ready? Yeah. Do you have your speech? Yeah. I marked it up a little bit. I've got it very comfortable in the way. Said, what? Yeah. I marked it up. I mean, I got about, there were about 30 words that I didn't feel comfortable saying, and I'd rather say it this way. And the person said, there's been a hundred years of diplomacy and international negotiations that led to every word on that sheet of paper that we gave you has been approved by every nation that is a member of the United Nations. Uh, you, you can't just make it up. You can't strike through words. I mean, this is foreign, uh, foreign policy and diplomacy. And, you know, once again, international agencies coordinated with other international agencies. You can't do that. You can't mark through, but it was funny because my, my friend said that word just sounded lousy coming out of my mouth. I got this accent and I got a way of saying things. It doesn't matter what your accent or way of saying, you can't do that. Um, and he didn't, and he read it exactly the way that they insisted or required him to read it. So Grassley's 90. Maybe we can, hey, let's do this. Here's an interesting thing we can do this week. The best of Fetterman, the best of McConnell, right? I mean, we're losing, we're losing legendary, iconic singers left and right, right? But we've got their work. I mean, we've still got um, Take It Easy. We've still got The Weight. We've still got Margaritaville. Mm -hmm. we, we, we can't let these people slip to the other side without their greatest hits. So maybe, Josh, you can help us with this. We've got a list of people who have no business being in an elected office, 
and let's let's find out um, who the best of the best is. The you know Grassley's greatest hits, Fetterman's finest. Um, you know Biden's bumblings. We'll we'll come up with our play play a game of that. M- maybe we can take input from our listeners. Maybe Josh, we can give an email. Okay, and let someone find a YouTube video that they think is Chuck Grassley's great. And maybe we're leaving someone out. I mean, you know, Stroke Face Pelosi's on there in some way. She's had her moments. Yeah, she's had her moments. Um, and and it, hers is more visual. It's more the way she kind of expresses herself in a certain way. It's kind of like Joker meets, I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of a Joker face um, going on when she, you know, says how much San Francisco needs her um, in Washington. Let's take a break. We'll be back on the other side. Oh, God. Oh, my God. You know, 175, New York. We have some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. Fuel 55, uh, on an airplane that's been hijacked. And things don't go well. I'm looking good. I just want you to know I absolutely love you. I want you to do good. So happy to find things to my parents and everybody. And I just totally love you. And uh, I'll see you later. What are those people going to do? All the elevators are blocked out. Oh my god. So both towers are now. Okay, I got an aircraft that's out east of the White House. Crystal City, just north of Crystal City. Just to the north of your town. Yeah, stop all the parchers. Pentagon just got hit. Don't say that. Goddamn, I can't even protect my NCA. United 93, that traffic fuse, 1 o'clock, 12 miles eastbound, 370. Negative contact, we're looking, United 93. United 93, Cleveland, if you hear the center, I den. I got that piece of dust. Keep remaining to be. Tuesday, 9.47 a.m. Hi, baby. I'm, baby, you have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, babe. I hope to be able to see your face again, baby. I love you. Bye. We're 56865. Uh, no, we have a, uh, I believe it is a uh, Boeing 757. Can you see him up there, sir? That's concurred. Uh, it looks like he's rocking his wings. Roger. He's rocking back and forth. We're 56865. I advise you to stay away from that aircraft. Go north as fast as you can. United 93. Have you got information on that yet? Yeah, he's down. He's down? Yes. When did he land? He did not land. Are we down? Yeah, somewhere up northeast of Camp David. Honestly, I just want to let you know I love you, and I'm stuck in this building in New York. There's lots of 
That's uh, it's hard to hmm. say anything after that. You know, I just felt it important to not yeah. hear the broadcast. I mean, that you know, the professionals become professionals, but the people you heard weren't professionals. I mean, they were you know, men and women believing that they'd probably never see their loved ones ever again, and wanting their loved ones to know I, how much you love them. Wow. Eight forty-six a.m. Flight eleven hit the North Tower. 22 years ago, 22 years ago. And the world has never been the same. We had a debate this morning about, you know, nine 11 and the financial crisis of 2008 and the pandemic. I mean, that those were I mean, very monumental moments in American history, but after reliving that it's clear, I mean, it's clear to me that there was a sense of anxiety and fear that had never existed in a generation of Americans because our homeland was under attack. Um, we were, I mean, the invincible didn't feel quite so invincible. Am I right? I mean, is that fair? Yeah, exactly I mean, the, right. You know, the big, bad uh, United States of America didn't feel quite so big and bad as, as we did. And, you know, it, it offers, I don't know, it's, um, it's an interesting exercise to put yourself through. How you felt about America, um, 9-10-2001, and how you feel, feel about America today and what transpired on that day to get you to feel the way you feel now. I mean, we've had this great debate about what we should have done, should not have done, how much money we spent, how long we stayed. But, but in all honesty, put yourself in that position in that moment, and it, it, it's hard to be rational. It's hard to be practical. It I mean, stirs it, up all the emotions. Sure again. it does. I mean, it, it's hard for me to voices. do this right now. Yeah, uh, it, it really and truly is. And... I mean, it was a far. I mean, it, it was, you know, I, I don't know anybody that died at the World Trade Center. I don't know anybody that was on any of those planes. Uh, we've spoken with people who do. We've spoken with people um, who have. But it was a, um, I mean, it was an horrific day in American history. It was a day that I hope we never, ever, ever experience again. But I hope we never, ever forget how we felt that day. Because vulnerability is something America is not very accustomed to. I mean, we talked a lot about the American century and the post-World, uh, Second World War and uh, American imperialism. I mean, we have these complicated political and societal debates about, you know, America good, America you know, how good, America's not angelic. But, um, but, but we were somewhat united in that moment because our homeland was under attack. Our neighbors and brothers and sisters were in harm's way, and we, you know, we did the best we knew how to do uh, under those situations and circumstances. Now we can debate the next 20 years and what government decided to do with, you know, the Patriot Act and Homeland Security and 
uh, you know, Afghanistan turns into Iraq and weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that's what you have to do. You have to do an accounting of uh, what you got right, what you got wrong. But I think the rawness of human emotion is what we need to remember today, that people who loved, uh, you know, their brothers and sisters and moms and dads and kids, lives will never be the same. I mean, it will never, ever, ever be um, the same. No matter what we do, no matter how many flags we drape over uh, the Pentagon or the Capitol, no matter how many roses we plant, no matter how many um, hugs we give, you know, that, that day changed America forever. Um, I said, and, I, and I'm being a bit flippant when I say this, you know, the biggest adjustment I had to make was taking your shoes off at an airport because I'm not a New Yorker. But, but when you hear the, the raw emotion in those people's voice, it really brings it home. I mean, it's not CNN or Fox News reporting on something. It's people telling the people they love most in this world, goodbye. I'll probably never see you again. 843-661-0937. It is the anniversary of 9-11, 22 years since the Twin Towers were attacked, the Pentagon, and also um, Shankville, Pennsylvania, I think was the other um, location. Fox News Radio's Eben Brown is in Miami. Eben, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning. So, so what about 22 years? I mean, it's not 20, it's not 25. We have these anniversaries, but but we played some um, some clips this morning, and it was not the media announcing what has happened. It was the recording of phone calls, Eben, from people on a plane in a building calling the people they love most in this world, uh, saying goodbye. That there is a there, there's still a raw human emotion attached to this moment that that people who live through it will never forget. Uh, yeah, I uh, I believe you are correct uh, that uh, there are plenty of people who still, when uh, made to recall that morning, will still kind of have those visceral feelings. But what may be more interesting is that next year uh, we'll have a presidential election and there will be a number of people voting in that presidential election who were not yet alive when 9-11 happened. Uh, and uh, I think for those people and for those who were incredibly young at the time, they may not have that emotional connection. So they they may not uh, feel that visceral feeling, and they also have no experience of what it was like to actually put everything aside in those days and weeks afterwards and actually kind of be Americans all at once. Um, you know, I, I think these young kids who are so full of anger all the time, whether it was from you know, a decade ago or so with Occupy Wall Street through Antifa now, they, they're too young to, to remember putting all that crap aside for a moment and, uh, uh, and, and kind of standing with one another and getting on lines to donate blood and, uh, and taking up collections uh, and the like and signing up for military service that so many people did uh, afterwards. You know, I, I think that that's lost on a whole generation of Americans. Yeah, been weird question, but I got to ask. I, I, I was taught to believe, and, and I later realized through my own understanding, that I lived in a post-Second World War world, that the majority of things I encountered in my life were a result of the outcome of the Second World War. Are we living in a post-9-11 war or world? Are we aware of it? Do we understand the impact that moment in time had with the way we live our lives today. I told uh, Rev this morning, my, my sidekick here, the, the only big difference in my life is I have to take my shoes off at the airport. I don't live in New York. I, I don't operate in that world. I mean, obviously, as an American, it touched my, my soul, and I wanted to do something in reaction to that. But, but the last 22 years, is it fair to say 
that has been a post 9-11 world? Well, I, I think so. I think there are certain things that have changed that we don't go back to. Um, you know, we're still taking our shoes off, like you said, at the airport. Uh, it's, it's an inconvenience, but it is what it is, right? Uh, I don't think it really interrupts the flow of most people's day. Uh, but uh, look, we for a lot of people, the world changed then, and it hasn't gone back, and it won't. I think there are some people that try to equate COVID. I don't think it really does. Um, but... Uh, you know, there again, if you weren't there, if you if you didn't have that emotional connection to it, it may be hard to, to fathom. Um, but, uh, you know, there are people who don't go into stadiums or who still don't want to fly. You know, I know someone who doesn't like to fly uh, and he didn't have that problem before 9-11 and he wasn't in New York. He wasn't supposed to fly that day or anything like that. He just he can't bring himself to go on a plane ever since. Do you remember uh, exactly uh, where you were, Eben? I was in traffic on the Jersey side of the George Washington Bridge watching two buildings on fire. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And that emotion is still there. I mean, that, that, that visual, I mean, I, I got to believe you'll never, ever in a million years forget that visual. And that's, I mean, it's not distant to me. It's not that I don't care, but, but I don't have that personal connection. Not, you know, when I talk to a New Yorker, um, it, it's, it's obvious. It, it's just, it doesn't mean more to him because, we were all New Yorkers on that given day, so to speak. And, you know, Rudy became America's mayor as a result of that. But, but from your, I mean, seeing it, it's got to be different than me hearing about it and talking about it. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I remember practically everything from that morning uh, and where I was. And, and um, you know, I, I had gotten out of the traffic and into uh, up the, the highway a bit to a scenic lookout point on the Hudson River where there were a few of us uh, just plunking quarters into those uh, binoculars, you know, those coin-operated binoculars, watching the buildings and watching them fall. Uh, and then I had a, a fighter jet fly overhead, very low. I mean, low enough, we hit the deck. Like, everyone there kind of got on the ground. It was that low. And, um, you know, you could see the afterburner. It looked like the scene in Top Gun when the plane takes off from the, from the carrier. Um, and I just remember thinking, oh, buddy, you're too late. Uh, and, uh, it's, um, uh, yeah, I, I think if you were there or if you were, maybe if you were at the Pentagon, if, if, you know, you, you might've, you have a little bit more of a visceral memory of it because you saw things. And I, even at me seeing things, I was still a distance away. I wasn't running for my life, uh, from, from falling skyscrapers like so many other people were. Uh, but I, I still think that for the rest of us who were alive and at least watching television, you, you, you had a sense of, of the enormity of it um, because things were palpably different. Uh, but if you are younger, you, you lack that. And I think it, you're kind of in this, this Pearl Harbor phase of it where you're going to have older people telling younger people what it was like uh, to try to keep the, the memory of it uh, as fresh as possible, but there will be people who to them, it's just a, it's just a piece of American history that appears in a, you know, maybe a page or a paragraph of a high school history textbook. And that's kind of it. That is so very well articulated. Evan, thank you for your time this morning. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. You got it. That's just kind of an interesting, I mean, you know, the George, I mean, it's so, half of our landmarks are in New York, you know, in Washington and things that are so known and noted. I mean, I remember exactly where I was. Um, I mean, we, Me too. I mean, we had a little break room 
at AA Builders. And it was formerly an office. We grew the business, and the office became kind of a building in its own. And we turned the, um, we turned the old office into a break room bathroom. And, I mean, it was very, very uh, primitive. I mean, it was not fancy at all. Panel on the wall. You could tell where a couple of phones used to be, weren't there any longer. A um, couple of bathroom stalls over here. Anyway, I mean, it's where, you know, a lot of, in, in a blue-collar business, I'll take it in my world. I mean, you know, Bruce sings about it. I lived it. In a, in a blue-collar factory, there are very few people go out and eat lunch. I mean, it, one of the things that dawned on me when I got in politics, everybody goes out and eat lunch. Nobody went out and ate lunch. I mean, you ordered out once a week on Friday. Everybody got paid, and that was a big deal, and you went and, you know, you, you had your meals delivered. But other than that, it was a, um, I mean, in all honesty, it was an igloo, a little small igloo cooler, and everybody had their own lunch pail. And you had a, you know, a, a, a sandwich bag or two, and you had a bag of chips and a sandwich and a Diet Pepsi or whatever, uh, you know, your beverage of choice, um, nab crackers. I mean, I'm getting real rural here, but uh, in that little cooler, and everybody, you know, when, when, the, uh, when the alarm went off at 12, everybody went to the break room, and we had this little room set aside but it was also a place that if I were a long way from the office, kind of in the plant, I could go if someone over the loudspeaker said, Ken, line one, Ken, line two. I mean, this before cell phones. I mean, I guess cell phones were existent, but not to the point they are now. I mean, you know, um, the people that I conduct business with called the plant. And the, the secretary or someone in the office would page me or my brother. And, um, and we're out in, the biz, out in the business trying to keep everything, you know, trying to keep the plant productive, so to speak. But there was a certain friend of mine that I'd done a lot of business with. He was a sales rep for about six or eight companies. And he and I developed a friendship. Went a couple of Braves game together, Rev. His kids were about my kids' age. We had about the same sort of big Florida Gator fan. Uh, just a big Florida. In fact, he and I have gone to a couple of Gator Gamecock football games. Um, but he called. I, I may have called him early, early that morning because I'm waiting on a part. These tarps cover the loads dot makes you have a tarp you know you can't let your load not be covered because things fall out down to the road it causes problems anyway i'm waiting got two trucks got to be delivered to charleston i remember like it was yesterday and i called him early that morning to find a, a, a tracking number from fedex or ups on what time you know those um those parts would be there and he and i are on the phone and we may have been talking about Gamecocks and Gators. We always did. And being September 11, you know, we're a week or two into the football season. And I just remember him saying, I can't say what he said. Uh, it was the crap word, you know, that, that you can't say on the radio. But he said in the middle of our sentence. And, I mean, we were going to eventually get to tarps. But I don't think we were talking about tarps yet. I think he was talking about the Gators. And I'm talking about the Gamecocks. And all of a sudden, he says, oh, crap. Not crap, but oh, crap. I said, what? He said, you know, um, they just said over the radio that a plane flew into the World Trade Centers. Well, I'm like, well, you know, man, that New York, you're not crazy. That place is helicopters and sightseeing planes and all that. So we continued talking, and I think we did get to tarps. And then he said, again, holy, another plane has flown in. I said, hey, let's hang up. And we did. I mean, we, we just stopped in our tracks. And I remember either calling my wife or her calling me. And I'm country. You know, I'm getting my crowd with me. I don't trust anybody at that moment. And I said, hey, go, go to the school and get the boys. 
because my daughter wasn't born yet. She was born in 03. I said, go to school and get the boys. For what? I said, you know, something crazy is going on. Um, now, now, once again, I'm ruling redneck, and we get real Ramboish, <laughs> you know, in in the, in those moments. And she said, do what? I said, yeah. I said, I mean, there's, I, I don't, I don't have a clue what's happening. Chris, I mean, the guy's name is Chris Chair. Chris Chair just told me on the phone that a plane flew into the World Trade Center and then another plane. So that's not an accident, you know. I mean, I understand a sightseer helicopter. I mean, those crazy things happen from time to time. But two don't fly to two buildings twenty minutes or fifteen minutes of one another, and and, and by then, I mean the whole the plant. I mean, we had radios on walls everywhere, and all everybody's gathering around uh, these radios. The, the the power of radio rev, and everybody's going about, and then everybody just kind of like, hey, I, I need to go, I need to go, I need to go, go where? I don't know. I don't. I just need to go. I don't need to be here welding truck beds together. I mean, I, I need to be, and, and nobody ever said because we don't. Nobody in that building understood America under attack. I mean, no, nobody. I mean, if you just said neoconservatism in that building, they would have thought that was some drink you buy, you know, wherever. Or if you just said, you know, interventionism. I mean, they, there's nobody in that building, myself included, that would have any clue. Um, I mean, I probably knew what neoconservatism meant, and obviously intervention. I know what that means, but not not in, not in a military sense, not in a you know foreign policy or or globalist sense. But I just remember a bunch of good old boys didn't want to be there. They wanted to be around the people that they had to take care of. And they wanted to get out of there to go to their wife, their kid, their family, or whatever. And I was no exception. I, I remember th- saying, you know, I'll meet you there at the school. What, what are you going to do? I mean, it's New York. I don't know. I don't have any idea. But it's that irrational. And, and that goes to fear. But because once again, I'd been taught, Josh, to believe we're invincible. I mean, uh, my foreign policy, the extent of my foreign policy, is I bought into this. If we don't find them over there, we'll find them over here. You know, I mean, that, that's when we were doing these things in, in uh, you know, Croatia and Bosnia and Grenada. I mean, and it was good enough for me when somebody with, with a nice suit and, a, and a, you know, a non-Southern accent said, if we don't find them over there, we'll find them over here. I'm like, well, I mean, he knows who he's talking about. Look at how sharply his part, hair's parted. You know, look how nice his suit is. Of course he knows. I mean, he's a diplomat. He's a foreign policy expert. He'd never lie to me. Of course he knows what he's talking about. But but all of a sudden, the irrational fear takes over. And, and as long as we're talking about it, you trust that guy with that suit and that severe parted hair. But but all of a sudden, when buildings are being attacked in New York City, and I mean, it, it's that, that fear almost consumes you and you get real afraid. And when you get afraid, you want the people you love around you and you want to make sure everybody's okay. So I can remember. Um, and that's kind of, I mean, it's not, it's not funny by any stretch, but, 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 but a bunch of good old boys who knew very little about foreign policy, diplomacy, intervention, neoconservatism, they didn't want to be in that building. I mean, they wanted to be on the road gathering up the people they cared most about in this world, just in case, just in case what? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have any idea, but, but that's just that natural human emotion to be protective of the people you care most about. You said you remember where you were, Rev. Absolutely. I was at work in radio. We needed to get the news out to the public. I was sitting in my office, uh, Miller Communications office in Sumter, 51 Commerce Street, where our listeners in Sumter are hearing this show right now from from WDXY, my office in that building. Um, one of the guys called over from one of the studios and said, hey, man, a plane just hit a World Trade Center building. Oh, okay. Like you, I thought, well, it's an accident. You know, something happened. 
Sounds unfortunate, but we'll just keep our ear on it. And then, of course, when the second plane hit, you know, it was on, and we knew it. And at that point, our focus was how do we get news out to the public? Um, because we were programming music radio stations, you know, fun morning shows, morning zoos, that kind of thing going on, but we needed to get into serious mode then. So we actually had to do some engineering to be able to get the ABC News radio feed. Uh, we were an affiliate of ABC um, onto the radio stations. And I think at some point we actually put a television up and pointed a microphone toward the television, and then we got the things wired up so we could get the, the, the raw, feel, raw feeds to all the radio stations. We just stayed with that uh, throughout the day. Uh, we sent some people over to local emergency preparedness offices. Uh, again, you didn't know. We did know, you know, Shaw Air Force Base is nearby. You didn't know the, the targets for, for these attacks and how far it would go. And so it was our job at that point, being in radio, uh, to step up and get the news out to the public. So that's what we did all day. I'll, I'll share this with you. And I don't think I've ever, I mean, I think I've shared it with you, but nobody else listening. My sister died September 6, 2001. The funeral was September 8, 2001. So we're grieving. My dad in particular wasn't doing real well. I mean, my brother and I had kind of lugged. I mean, it, it, you know, as tragic as it is, it, you got to move on. And you got to run your business and do the best you can. And, and my dad was kind of moping around. I, I remember that, that would have been Tuesday. We kept an eye on him. Uh, she died Thursday, funeral on Saturday. I mean, he was in, he was in a bad way. I mean, he just was, he was in a bad, his baby girl had passed away at 29 years old. You understand him being in a bad way. We went to work that Monday, kept an eye on him, try, try to really, you know, Hey, let, let's, you know, I mean, not, not move, forget, move on, but you know, let, let's life goes on. you got to figure out a way to, to kind of, you know, make your way forward. And then Tuesday that happens. And I'll never forget this. There was an office with a filing cabinet. And somebody got a television to put the off the television on top of the filing cabinet to kind of follow what was happening. And, and my dad's still mourning. I mean, he's still grieving extremely, extremely, um, just somebody just, it wasn't doing good at all. I mean, just not doing well at all. He walked by and I've told you this story. He walked by and looked at the television for about five seconds and said, and I quote them damn buildings will fall. But he appeared to be very, you know, dismissive of it. I mean, not paying much attention because once again, he's, I mean, he's, he's mourning the loss of a 29 year old daughter um, and, and the funeral two days prior to that. But when he walked by the television, he said, and, and I've told Rev this, he said, them damn buildings will fall. And, and I remember thinking like, what do you mean fall? He said, well, they, I mean, it's all metal. I mean, it's concrete, you know, it's, it's, got, it's metal and, and metal's going to get that hot. I mean, if those jets flew into those buildings, and I've told you, my, my dad was kind of a self-taught engineer. I mean, barely got out of high school. He was good at high school. It took him 16. Anyway, um, <laughs> he tried several grades more than one time. I'll just leave it there. Uh, and finally made his way out of out of high school. But but I'll never forget the, the way he explained it. And, and you know, I, he was a self-taught engineer. Had no formal education, but he knew more about that kind of stuff than anybody I'd ever known. And sure enough, what, 20 minutes later, one building collapses and then the other. And he was talking about that jet fuel and how hot it gets when it explodes and that, that, that tinsel in the metal, or the, you know, the, um, the sturdiness of the metal, so to speak, the density and, and tinsel strength is what it is. I mean, there, there's kind of a tinsel strength weighting uh, of steel. And I mean, I, I'd never forget. I mean, he was the first person because it didn't cross my mind. I mean, can they get those people out of the building above the fire? That's going to be hard. I mean, I don't know how you do that. But it never dawned on me that those buildings were going to fall until he walked by the television and said, 
And, and in typical fashion, those damn buildings will fall. And sure enough, they did. 843-661-0937. Where were you? Didn't Alan Jackson write a song when the world stopped turning? And it did feel like a moment for a moment or two or three or four, the world stopped turning. People got real afraid. Take a break. Back in a few. It takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. I think I did the same thing you did in the, and when it was happening on September 11th. You talked about calling your wife and saying. That's what country people do. Yeah, go, go you know, maybe pick up the, the kids from school or whatever. I, I did the same thing. I remember walking. In the, I was in the back parking lot of the radio station in Sumter. And I go out there and make a phone call. And I call my wife. And my oldest would have been five. So he would have been in like a kindergarten school. My youngest was two. He, he would have been home. But I said, I said, maybe you ought to go to um, go to school and pick up Grayson. You've got Brandon with you. And then y'all go over to your parents' house. I'm going to be stuck here all day. So that that's that was what came to my mind to try to. I thought only country people did yeah. stupid things like that <laughs> well, in, the, in those trying moments. You know, and, and, I, and I think a lot about then and now. Um, I mean, I, I do. I think a lot about the uh, the way the nation was. Um, I said this morning, and I'll stand by this comment. Um, if you give powerful people, Republican or Democrat, a chance to execute power and authority, they'll normally do it. And I remember the faith I had in George W. Bush. Now, you know, once again, I registered to vote in 2004. I mean, I knew nothing about politics. I mean, I, I knew a little, I knew enough to be not, not stupid. I mean, but that was it. I mean, I, you know, I lived my life. I, were, I ran our business or did the best I knew how to raise my family. I loved my Gamecocks and the Braves. And, but, but Republican, Democrat didn't mean a lot to me. I mean, it just did not. Um, my father convinced me that Republicans were more pro-business than Democrats, but, but that was about it. But I remember, um, you know, in the debate when George W. Bush was asked about the, sing- the person who singularly or the single person who had more influence on his life than anybody else. And he said, you know, Jesus. And that was kind of in my wheelhouse. I mean, I was raised in a Baptist church. I had that set of values and principles and morals. And then um, he read the 23rd Psalm that night when he addressed the nation. So, so I got to believe that this guy is genuine. I mean, he's not going to lead us down a, a road. I mean, he's not going to take advantage of an opportunity to, um, you know, influence global policy in a geopolitical way. I mean, he would never do that. I mean, the guy said Jesus was his, was his hero, and then he read the 23rd Psalm. I mean, how much, you know, closer to God can you get than that? Um, but there was Cheney and Rumsfeld and some of the others, and and they saw an opportunity once again to execute a plan. Uh, you know, what did um, Rahm Emanuel say? Don't let a crisis go to waste. Well, this was a crisis, and, and out of that came Homeland Security and the Patriot Act and you know, both parties buying. And I'm not saying it's all bad. Please understand. I mean, you know, I'm glad that we've been kept safe since then. I mean, I think if you looked at George W. Bush's time as president, the one thing uh, they weren't successful on launching another attack or, or um, you know, executing. They probably launched some other attacks, but executing uh, an attack. But I do wonder the difference in the country prior to that moment in time and, and, and the way it is today. What would What would we be like today had there never been a 9-11? I mean, I can't answer that. You can't. Nobody can answer mm-hmm. that question. But it's interesting to ponder. I mean, how much different are we today as a nation because of our response to 9-11? I mean, that's, you know, that's always been a very interesting. Now, now once again, as, as I got more involved in politics and began 
somewhat retrospectively saying, oh, man, they, they should have done this. And and I don't know that I like that about the Patriot Act. Homeland Security gets too much money to do all these all these things. It was I was oblivious to that uh, to begin with. But, but you know, I've tried to catch up and better understand why they did what they did. Um, to me, personally, I think Rumsfeld-Cheney took advantage of a good and decent George W. Bush. Uh, I really believe that. I sincerely believe that they were the ones that – that, I mean, that they were globalist interventionist hawks at heart. I mean, they, they were imperialist. I mean, Trump's, I mean, uh, Rumsfeld, Cheney, I mean, they, they are, I mean, they, they're, they're American imperialist at their core. I mean, if you give them half a chance, they're going to intervene. You give them half a chance, they're going to exercise their military authority. That's just who they are. And, and I think sometimes it's probably the right thing to do. And there are other times it's probably been. Uh, the wrong thing to do. Let's we, we are coming up on 937, which was the time that Flight 77 hit the Pentagon. Okay. Um, anyway, Jeff in Florence. Hi, Jeff. You're on. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, it's uh, it's funny when you talk about where you were. I, I can tell you where I was on uh, September 9th, 2001. I was on top of the World Trade Center. Mm. Wow. Really? Wow. Um, yes. Yeah. And, um, I, and I, I remember going up there. And if you'd ever been there after the attack that was they tried in uh, uh, nineteen ninety three, you remember there was a bomb yeah, in the basement yeah, or downstairs in the, basement. the parking, yeah, yeah. And and I remember thinking like when you're going through security and they're going through women's bags. This was before TSA, so it, it was a different world. People didn't go through your bags. People didn't you know scrutinize you like they do after nine eleven. And I remember thinking, like, wow, this is sad. This is America. And they're going through, you know, my friend's, my girlfriend's bag. And and then two days later, look what happened. And um, so it is a, a different country now that I don't think people appreciate what it was like before 2001, uh, for sure. Um, and and it's it was nice to see the country rally after uh, 2001, September 11th. Um, but I, um, I, I, I shudder to think what we would do today. I, do I think that we would rally? I, I don't know. Um, I would hope we do, but, uh, if we ever get attacked like that again, um, I, I, I do think Americans, uh, can rally together. Uh, so I hope our response would be comparable. Jeff, what, is, what is it, what is it we still have in common I mean, you, you and I argue about this and that, and, and you believe what you believe, and I. But I, I don't, I don't, I don't think you're a bad guy. I don't think you believe I'm a bad guy. But what, what? I mean, when you said we rallied, and, and you worry whether we'd rally today or not, what did we lose? What did we have then that we don't have today? We had a we had a sense of uh, America. You, you, know, you joke. Uh, this this is going to sound funny. We had America first back then. When, we did care about America first. This movement you talk about, it, and I'm not trying to get political, it, it pales in comparison to what Americans felt on September 11th. It's not even the close to the same thing. It's just like we had a, um, a loyalty to country, not to a party or a person. And while I did not vote for uh, George Bush, and while I felt like Al Gore was the winner of the presidency, I did rally behind George Bush. 
And he had my support until Iraq. He added in Afghanistan, uh, get the people who hurt us, take them out. Um, But then, like you say, and I do agree, and I'll always say Dick Cheney is an evil man who was self-serving. And his, he, Colin Powell was lied to. George Bush Jr. was lied to. Um, the the people that you talk about, the Rumsfelds, the Dick Cheneys, the cast of characters um, who railed against Bush Sr. when he didn't go in during Desert Storm and take out Saddam Hussein. And that's all about money. It's all about money and oil and power like that imperialism you're talking about. So, um it's there was a there was after after 9-11 the goodwill lasted for a while but then the neocons really really did push the envelope and if you think that we're anywhere close to that bad we're not you know if you think that sending weapons to ukraine is bad my god what we did after you know in iraq in the middle east that's that was truly a tragedy. But, but Jeff, didn't that turn the political world on its head? I mean, if, if, if Rumsfeld, no. Cheney, and Bush do less than what they did, Trump never gets elected. I mean, there's no way. Obama probably never gets elected. Um, I mean, I, I've always felt that Obama was the first rejection of, of the Bush wars, and Trump was the second rejection of what I'll call the neoconservative march to American imperialism. I'll say this: that's that's um, that's a high-minded uh, threshold, or a lot of thinking went into that statement. I don't think it was that. I think Obama is just like Trump. He's a cult of personality. He was a lightning in a bottle. He shouldn't have been elected. He wasn't ready to be elected, and he shouldn't. In my mind, uh, it was a wasted presidency, eight years. Um, but I'm not saying that, you know, whether it was Hillary or whoever, Obama was an outlier like Trump is. And I don't think it's a reaction because of the Bush, uh, imperialism at all. Um, I, I just, it, it, that didn't hurt Bush, the economy 2008. That's, that's what led the Democrat to the white house. A ham sandwich could have got elected. But did uh, let me ask you this because I'd be interested in your take on that. And I don't disagree with what you said, but I think we live in a People Magazine um, election cycle, and Trump and Obama had big personalities, very interesting personalities. Well, I mean, but but let's go let's go back to this for a second, and we got to take a break. So, so did did the post nine eleven political debate put neoconservatism on trial, and it didn't. It didn't hold its own. In other words, a lot of Americans began questioning, Republican and Democrat, why are we doing this? I mean, how long do we need to be there? Why are no. we making – I mean, I, I set Ukraine aside. I mean, let's forget Russia and yeah. Ukraine. Let's talk about the Middle East for a second. D- d- do you believe that both parties began to sign- – w- w- you said it's all about the money. I'll agree with you. You're a Democrat. I'm a Republican. We agree it was all about the money and the control of the military-industrial complex. But but aren't isn't that the reason we're far more skeptical today – than we ever, or maybe not ever have been, but in modern America, we're more skeptical of the military-industrial complex than we've ever been. No, no. Eric Prince is still uh, passing influence in Washington. 
the military industrial complex still rules the day in Washington. But it doesn't have the trust of the American people is what I'm saying. I understand the train's still running on time because there's so much money and influence and power and authority that have been so embedded in that system. But what I'm saying, the American public seem to look at our involvements and interventions differently than they did in my first 50 years on the planet. I'll, I'll say after Iraq, okay, after we went into Iraq, no. The, the American people, a half of them still, still bought in and believe. But when you talk about the money, it's the oil companies. It's the revenue dollars. They said on TV, this war will pay for itself when we take the oil. James Baker. I mean, this, this cast of characters, it's, it's an unsavory lot. Um, I'm not saying the Democrats don't have their snakes, but that, there was a particular breed that, that infiltrated George Bush's presidency. I think that's well said. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Uh, we'll disagree on some things um, tomorrow. Let's and, go to the phone. And, oh, and I was going to say, I remember those days right after 9-11. You couldn't find a car that didn't have a flag, an American flag on it. Yeah. And now we're flying about as many Ukrainians. Like. Anyway, uh, let's go to the phone. We've got a couple of minutes. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, guys. You're talking about uh, Jesus. I think about witnessing, man. That was a call it a cool blue sky, low humidity day that day. And I actually, my parents were living. I remember that. Uh, I lived on the Cannon Bridge Road. I worked in West Columbia. Never dreamed that on my way to work that I went by a store that Somebody be running for president that that was at that store, but I'm agree with Jeff. I hate to say this, uh, I'm agree with Jeff. Uh, some we're back in that day. The news was halfway trustworthy. It really was. And I, when I think about those towers, the Pentagon, uh, that would be the global financial and military government. That was what was in control, and that's the reason these guys went after that man. So. Uh, I'm telling you, uh, I, I never dreamed I would agree with Jeff, but he's right about some of this stuff. So I'll leave you guys at that. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back in just a few moments.